Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter One of The Woman in White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Addison. The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. First Epoch The Story Begun by Walter Hartwright Of Clement's Inn A Teacher of Drawing This is the story of what a woman's patience can endure and what a man's resolution can achieve. If the machinery of the law could be depended on to fathom every case of suspicion and to conduct every process of inquiry with moderate assistance only from the lubricating influences of oil of gold the events which fill these pages might have claimed their share of the public attention in a court of justice but the law is still in certain inevitable cases the pre-engaged servant of the long purse and the story is left to be told for the first time in this place as the judge might once have heard it so the reader shall hear it now no circumstance of importance from the beginning to the end of the disclosure shall be related on hearsay evidence when the writer of these introductory lines walter hartwright by name happens to be more closely connected than others with the incidents to be recorded he will describe them in his own person when his experience fails he will retire from the position of narrator, and his task will be continued from the point at which he has left the dock by other persons who can speak to the circumstances under notice from their own knowledge, just as clearly and positively as he has spoken before them. Thus the story here presented will be told by more than one pen as the story of an offence against the laws is told in court by more than one witness with the same object in both cases to present the truth always in its most direct and most intelligible aspect and to trace the course of one complete series of events by making the persons who have been most closely connected with them at each successive stage relate their own experience 
word for word. Let Walter Hartwright, teacher of drawing, aged twenty-eight years, be heard first. Two. It was the last day of July. The long hot summer was drawing to a close, and we, the weary pilgrims of the London pavement, were beginning to think of the cloud shadows on the cornfields and the autumn breezes on the seashore. For my own poor part, the fading summer left me out of health, out of spirits, and, if the truth must be told, out of money as well. During the past year I had not managed my professional resources as carefully as usual, and my extravagance now limited me to the prospect of spending the autumn economically between my mother's cottage at Hampstead and my own chambers in town. The evening, I remember, was still and cloudy. The London air was at its heaviest. The distant hum of the street traffic was at its faintest the small pulse of the life within me, and the great heart of the city around me, seemed to be sinking in unison, languidly and more languidly, with the sinking sun. I roused myself from the book which I was dreaming over, rather than reading, and left my chambers to meet the cool night air in the suburbs. It was one of the two evenings in every week which I was accustomed to spend with my mother and my sister, so I turned my steps northward in the direction of Hampstead. Events which I have yet to relate make it necessary to mention in this place that my father had been dead some years at the period of which I am now writing, and that my sister Sarah and I were the sole survivors of a family of five children. My father was a drawing-master before me. His exertions had made him highly successful in his profession, and his affectionate anxiety to provide for the future of those who were dependent on his labours had impelled him, from the time of his marriage, to devote to the ensuring of his life a much larger portion of his income than most men consider it necessary to set aside for that purpose. Thanks to his admirable prudence and self-denial, my mother and sister were left, after his death, as independent of the world as they had been during his lifetime. I succeeded to his connection and had every reason to feel grateful for the prospect that awaited me at my starting in life. The quiet twilight was still trembling on the topmost ridges of the heath, and the view of London below me had sunk into a black gulf in the shadow of the cloudy night, when I stood before the gate of my mother's cottage. I had hardly rung the bell, before the house-door was opened violently. My worthy Italian friend, 
Professor Pescat, appeared in the servant's place, and darted out joyously to receive me, with a shrill foreign parody on an English cheer. On his own account, and I must be allowed to add, on mine also, the professor merits the honour of a formal introduction. Accident has made him the starting point of the strange family story which it is the purpose of these pages to unfold. I had first become acquainted with my Italian friend by meeting him at certain great houses where he taught his own language and I taught drawing. All I then knew of the history of his life was that he had once held a situation in the University of Padua, that he had left Italy for political reasons, the nature of which he uniformly declined to mention to any one, and that he had been for many years respectably established in London as a teacher of languages. Without being actually a dwarf, for he was perfectly well proportioned from head to foot, Pesca was, I think, the smallest human being I ever saw out of a showroom. Remarkable anywhere by his personal appearance, he was still further distinguished among the rank and file of mankind by the harmless eccentricity of his character. The ruling idea of his life appeared to be that he was bound to show his gratitude to the country which had afforded him an asylum and a means of subsistence, by doing his utmost to turn himself into an Englishman. A not content with paying the nation in general the compliment of invariably carrying an umbrella and invariably wearing gaiters and a white hat the professor further aspired to become an englishman in his habits and amusements as well as in his personal appearance of finding us distinguished as a nation by our love of athletic exercises the little man in the innocence of his heart devoted himself impromptu to all our english sports and pastimes whenever he had the opportunity of joining them firmly persuaded that he could adopt our national amusements of the field by an effort of will, precisely as he had adopted our national gaiters and our national white hat. I had seen him risk his limbs blindly at a fox-hunt and in a cricket-field, and soon afterwards I saw him risk his life just as blindly in the sea at Brighton, we had met there accidentally, and were bathing together. If we had been engaged in any exercise peculiar to my own nation, I should, of course, 
have looked after Pesca carefully, but as foreigners are generally quite as well able to take care of themselves in the water as Englishmen, it never occurred to me that the art of swimming might merely add one more to the list of manly exercises which the professor believed that he could learn impromptu. Soon after we had both struck out from shore, I stopped finding my friend did not gain on me, and turned round to look for him. To my horror and amazement, I saw nothing between me and the beach but two little white arms, which struggled for an instant above the surface of the water, and then disappeared from view. When I dived for him, the poor little man was lying quietly coiled up at the bottom, in a hollow of shingle, looking by many degrees smaller than I had ever seen him look before. During the few minutes that elapsed while I was taking him in, the air revived him, and he ascended the steps of the machine with my assistance. With the partial recovery of his animation, came the return of his wonderful delusion on the subject of swimming. As soon as his chattering teeth would let him speak, he smiled vacantly, and said he thought it must have been the cramp. When he had thoroughly recovered himself, and had joined me on the beach, his warm southern nature broke through all artificial English restraints in a moment. He overwhelmed me with the wildest expressions of affection, exclaimed passionately in his exaggerated Italian way that he would hold his life henceforth at my disposal, and declared that he should never be happy again until he had found an opportunity of proving his gratitude by rendering me some service which I might remember on my side to the end of my days. I did my best to stop the torrent of his tears and protestations by persisting in treating the whole adventure as a good subject for a joke, and succeeded at last, as I imagined, in lessening Pesca's overwhelming sense of obligation to me. Little did I think then, little did I think afterwards, when our pleasant holiday had drawn to an end, that the opportunity of serving me, for which my grateful companion so ardently longed, was soon to come, that he was eagerly to seize it on the instant, and that by so doing he was to turn the whole current of my existence into a new channel, and to alter me to myself, almost past recognition. Yet so it was. If I had not died for Professor Pesca when he lay under water on his shingle bed, I should, in all human probability, never have been connected with the story which these pages will relate. I should never, perhaps, have heard even the name of the woman who has lived in all my thoughts. 
who has possessed herself of all my energies, who has become the one guiding influence that now directs the purpose of my life. 3. Pesco's face and manner, on the evening when we confronted each other at my mother's gate, were more than sufficient to inform me that something extraordinary had happened. It was quite useless, however, to ask him for an immediate explanation. I could only conjecture, while he was dragging me in by both hands, that, knowing my habits, he had come to the cottage to make sure of meeting me that night, and that he had some news to tell of an unusually agreeable kind. We both bounded into the parlour in a highly abrupt and undignified manner. My mother sat by the open window, laughing and fanning herself. Pesco was one of her especial favourites, and his wildest eccentricities were always pardonable in her eyes. Poor dear soul! From the first moment when she found out that the little professor was deeply and gratefully attached to her son, she opened her heart to him unreservedly, and took all his puzzling foreign peculiarities for granted, without so much as attempting to understand any one of them. My sister Sarah, with all the advantages of youth, was, strangely enough, less pliable. She did full justice to Pesca's excellent qualities of heart, but she could not accept him implicitly, as my mother accepted him, for my sake. Her insular notions of propriety rose in perpetual revolt against Pesca's constitutional contempt for appearances, and she was always more or less undisguisedly astonished at her mother's familiarity with the eccentric little foreigner. I have observed, not only in my sister's case, but in the instances of others, that we of the young generation are nothing like so hearty and so impulsive as some of our elders. I constantly see old people, flushed and excited by the prospect of some anticipated pleasure, which altogether fails to ruffle the tranquillity of their serene grandchildren. Are we, I wonder, quite such genuine boys and girls now, as our seniors were in their time. Has the great advance in education taken rather too long a stride, and are we, in these modern days, just the least trifle in the world too well brought up? Without attempting to answer those questions decisively, I may at least record that I never saw my mother and my sister together in Pesca's society, 
without finding my mother much the younger woman of the two. On this occasion, for example, while the old lady was laughing heartily over the boyish manner in which we tumbled into the parlour, Sarah was perturbedly picking up the broken pieces of a teacup which the professor had knocked off the table in his precipitate advance to meet me at the door. "'I don't know what would have happened, Walter,' said my mother, "'if you had delayed much longer. Pesca has been half mad with impatience, and I have been half mad with curiosity.' The professor has brought some wonderful news with him, in which he says you are concerned, and he has cruelly refused to give us the smallest hint of it till his friend Walter appeared. Very provoking. It spoils the set, murmured Sarah to herself, mournfully absorbed over the ruins of the broken cup. While these words were being spoken, Pesca, happily and fussily unconscious of the irreparable wrong which the crockery had suffered at his hands, was dragging a large armchair to the opposite end of the room, so as to command us all three, in the character of a public speaker addressing an audience. Having turned the chair with its back towards us, he jumped into it on his knees, and excitedly addressed his small congregation of three from an impromptu pulpit. "'Now, my good dears,' began Pesca, who always said good dears, when he meant worthy friends. "'Listen to me. The time has come I recite my good news I speak at last.' "'Hear, hear,' said my mother, humouring the joke. The next thing he will break, Mamma, whispered Sarah, will be the back of the best armchair. I go back into my life, and I address myself to the noblest of created beings, continued Pesca, vehemently apostrophizing my unworthy self over the top rail of the chair, who found me dead at the bottom of the sea through cramp and who pulled me up to the top. And what did I say when I got into my own life and my own clothes again? Much more than was at all necessary, I answered as doggedly as possible. For the least encouragement in connection with this subject invariably let loose the professor's emotions in a flood of tears. I said persisted Pesca, that my life belonged to my dear friend Walter for the rest of my days, and so it does. I said that I should never be happy again till I had found the opportunity of doing a good something for Walter. And I have never been contented with myself till this most blessed day now, cried the enthusiastic little man at the top of his voice. The overflowing happiness bursts out of me at every pore of my skin like a perspiration, for on my faith and soul and honour the something is done at last, and the only word to say now is, right, all right. It may be necessary to explain here 
that Pesca prided himself on being a perfect Englishman in his language, as well as in his dress, manners, and amusements. Having picked up a few of our most familiar colloquial expressions, he scattered them about over his conversation whenever they happened to occur to him, turning them in his high relish for their sound and his general ignorance of their sense into compound words and repetitions of his own, and always running them into each other as if they consisted of one long syllable. Among the fine London houses where I teach the language of my native country, said the professor, rushing into his long-deferred explanation without another word of preface, there is one mighty fine in the big place called Portland. You all know where that is? Yes, yes, of course, of course. The fine house, my good dears, has got inside it a fine family, a mamma, fair and fat, three young misses, fair and fat, two young misters, fair and fat, and a papa, the fairest and the fattest of all, who is a mighty merchant, up to his eyes in gold, a fine man once, but seeing that he has got a naked head and two chins, fine no longer at the present time. Ah, now mind, I teach the sublime Dante to the young misses, and ah, my soul, bless my soul, it is not in human language to say how the sublime Dante puzzles the pretty heads of all three. No matter, all in good turn, and the more lessons the better for me. Now mind, imagine to yourselves, that I am teaching the young misses to-day as usual. We are all four of us down together in the hell of Dante at the seventh circle, but no matter for that. All the circles are alike to the three young misses, fair and fat. At the seventh circle, nevertheless, my pupils are sticking fast, and I, to set them going again, recite, explain, and blow myself up red-hot with useless enthusiasm, when a creak of boots in the passage outside, and in comes the golden papa, the mighty merchant with the naked head and the two chins. Ah, my good dears, I am closer than you think for to the business now. Have you been patient so far, or have you said to yourselves, to use what the juice pesca is long-winded to-night we declared that we were deeply interested the professor went on in his hand the golden papa has a letter and after he has made his excuse for disturbing us in our infernal region with the common mortal business of the house he addresses himself to the three young misses and begins as you English begin everything in this blessed world that you have to say with a great oh, oh, my dears, says the mighty merchant, I have got here a letter from my friend, Mr. The name has slipped out of my mind, but no matter, we shall come back to that, yes, yes, right, all right. So the papa says, I have got a letter from my friend, the Mr. 
and he wants a recommend from me of a drawing-master to go down to his house in the country my soul bless my soul when i heard the golden papa say those words if i had been big enough to reach up to him i should have put my arms round his neck and pressed him to my bosom in a long and grateful hug as it was i only bounced upon my chair my seat was on thorns and my soul was on fire to speak but i held my tongue and let papa go on perhaps you know says this good man of money twiddling his friend's letter this way and that in his golden fingers and thumbs perhaps you know my dears of a drawing-master that i can recommend the three young misses all look at each other and then say with the indispensable great o to begin oh dear no papa but here is mr pesca at the mention of myself i can hold no longer the thought of you my good dears mounts like blood to my head i start from my seat as if a spike had grown up from the ground through the bottom of my chair i address myself to the mighty merchant and i say english phrase dear sir i have the man the first and foremost drawing-master of the world recommend him by the post to-night and send him off bag and baggage english phrase again ha send him off bag and baggage by the train to-morrow stop stop says papa is he a foreigner or an englishman english to the bone of his back i answer respectable says papa sir i say for this last question of his outrages me and i have done being familiar with him sir the immortal fire of genius burns in this englishman's bosom and what is more his father had it before him never mind says the golden barbarian of a papa never mind about his genius mr pescott we don't want genius in this country unless it is accompanied by respectability and then we are very glad to have it very glad indeed can your friend produce testimonials letters that speak to his character i wave my hand negligently letters i say ha my soul bless my soul i should think so indeed volumes of letters and portfolios of testimonials if you like one or two will do says this man of phlegm and money let him send them to me with his name and address and stop stop mr pesca before you go to your friend you had better take a note banknote i say indignantly no banknote if you please till my brave englishman has earned it first banknote says papa in a great surprise who talked of banknote i mean a note of the terms a memorandum of what he is expected to do go on with your lesson mr pescott and i will give you the necessary extract from my friend's letter down sets the man of merchandise and money to his pen ink and paper and down i go once again into the hell of dante with my three young misses after me in ten minutes time the note is written and the boots of papa are creaking themselves away in the passage outside from that moment on my faith and soul and honour i know nothing more 
the glorious thought that I have got my opportunity at last, and that my grateful service for my dearest friend in the world is as good as done already, flies up into my head and makes me drunk. How I pull my young missus and myself out of our infernal region again, how my other business is done afterwards, how my little bit of dinner slides itself down my throat. I know no more than a man in the moon. Enough for me that here I am, with the mighty merchant's note in my hand, as large as life, as hot as fire, and as happy as a king. Ha, ha, ha! Right, 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 all right. Here the professor waved the memorandum of terms over his head, and ended his long and voluble narrative with his uh, shrill Italian parody of an English cheer. My mother rose the moment he had done with flushed cheeks and brightened eyes. She caught the little man warmly by both hands. My dear good Pasca, she said, I never doubted your true affection for Walter, but I am more than ever persuaded of it now. I am sure we are very much obliged to Professor Pasca for Walter's sake, added Sarah. She half rose while she spoke, as if to approach the armchair in her turn. But observing that Pasco was rapturously kissing my mother's hands, looked serious and resumed her seat. If the familiar little man treats my mother in that way, how will he treat me? Faces sometimes tell truth, and that was unquestionably the thought in Sarah's mind as she sat down again. Although I myself was gratefully sensible of the kindness of Pesca's motives, my spirits were hardly so much elevated as they ought to have been by the prospect of future employment now placed before me. When the professor had quite done with my mother's hand, and when I had warmly thanked him for his interference on my behalf, I asked to be allowed to look at the note of terms which his respectable patron had drawn up for my inspection. Pesca handed me the paper, with a triumphant flourish of the hand. Read, said the little man majestically. I promise you, my friend, the writing of the golden papa speaks with a tongue of trumpets for itself. The note of terms was plain, straightforward, and comprehensive at any rate. It informed me, first, that Frederick Fairley, Esquire, of Limeridge House, Cumberland, wanted to engage the services of a thoroughly competent drawing-master for a period of four months certain. Secondly, that the duties which the master was expected to perform would be of a twofold kind. He was to superintend the instruction of two young ladies in the art of painting in watercolours, and he was to devote his leisure time afterwards to the business of repairing and mounting a valuable collection of drawings which had been suffered to fall into a condition of total neglect. Thirdly, 
that the terms offered to the person who should undertake and properly perform these duties were four guineas a week, that he was to reside at Limeridge House, and that he was to be treated there on the footing of a gentleman. Fourthly, and lastly, that no person need think of applying for this situation unless he could furnish the most unexceptionable references to character and abilities. The references were to be sent to Mr. Fairley's friend in London, who was empowered to conclude all necessary arrangements. These instructions were followed by the name and address of Pesca's employer in Portland Place, and there the note or memorandum ended. The prospect which this offer of an engagement held out was certainly an attractive one. The employment was likely to be both easy and agreeable. It was proposed to me at the autumn time of the year when I was least occupied, and the terms judging by my personal experience in my profession, were surprisingly liberal. I knew this. I knew that I ought to consider myself very fortunate if I succeeded in securing the offered employment. And yet, no sooner had I read the memorandum than I felt an inexplicable unwillingness within me to stir in the matter. I had never, in the whole of my previous experience, found my duty and my inclination so painfully and so unaccountably at variance as I found them now. Oh, Walter, your father never had such a chance as this, said my mother, when she had read the note of terms and had handed it back to me. "'Such distinguished people to know,' remarked Sarah, straightening herself in the chair. "'And on such gratifying terms of equality, too.' "'Yes, yes, the terms in every sense are tempting enough,' I replied impatiently. "'But before I send in my testimonials, I should like a little time to consider.' "'Consider!' exclaimed my mother. "'Why, Walter, what is the matter with you?' "'Consider!' echoed my sister. "'What a very extraordinary thing to say under the circumstances!' "'Consider!' chimed in the professor. "'What is there to consider about? Answer me that! "'Have you not been complaining of your health, "'and have you not been longing for what you call "'a smack of the country breeze? Well.' there in your hand is the paper that offers you perpetual choking mouthfuls of country breeze for four months time is it not so ha again you want money well is four golden guineas a week nothing oh my soul bless my soul only give it to me and my boots shall creak like the golden papas with a sense of the overpowering richness of the man who walks in them four guineas a week and more than that the charming society of two young misses and more than that your bed your breakfast your dinner 
your gorging english teas and lunches and drinks of foaming beer all for nothing oh why walter my dear good friend juice what the juice for the first time in my life i have not eyes enough in my head to look and wonder at you neither my mother's evident astonishment at my behaviour nor pesca's fervid enumeration of the advantages offered to me by the new employment had any effect in shaking my unreasonable disinclination to go to limeridge house after starting all the petty objections that i could think of to going to cumberland and after hearing them answered one after another to my own complete discomfiture i tried to set up a last obstacle by asking what was to become of my pupils in london while i was teaching mr fairley's young ladies to sketch from nature the obvious answer to this was that the greater part of them would be away on their autumn travels and that the few who remained at home might be confided to the care of one of my brother drawing-masters whose pupils i had once taken off his hands under similar circumstances my sister reminded me that this gentleman had expressly placed his services at my disposal during the present season in case i wished to leave town my mother seriously appealed to me not to let an idle caprice stand in the way of my own interests and my own health and pesca piteously entreated that i would not wound him to the heart by rejecting the first grateful offer of service that he had been able to make to the friend who had saved his life the evident sincerity and affection which inspired these remonstrances would have influenced any man with an atom of good feeling in his composition though i could not conquer my own unaccountable perversity i had at least virtue enough to be heartily ashamed of it and to end the discussion pleasantly by giving way and promising to do all that was wanted of me the rest of the evening passed merrily enough in humorous anticipations of my coming life with the two young ladies in cumberland pesca inspired by our national grog which appeared to get into his head in the most marvellous manner five minutes after it had gone down his throat asserted his claims to be considered a complete englishman by making a series of speeches in rapid succession proposing my mother's health my sister's health my health and the healths in mass of mr fairley and the two young misses pathetically returning thanks himself immediately afterwards for the whole party a secret walter said my little friend confidentially as we walked home together i am flushed by the recollection of my own eloquence 
my soul bursts itself with ambition one of these days i go into your noble parliament it is the dream of my whole life to be honourable pesca mp oh, the next morning i sent my testimonials to the professor's employer in portland place three days passed and i concluded with secret satisfaction that my papers had not been found sufficiently explicit on the fourth day however an answer came it announced that mr fairley accepted my services and requested me to start for cumberland immediately all the necessary instructions for my journey were carefully and clearly added in a postscript i made my arrangements unwillingly enough for leaving london early the next day towards evening pesca looked in on his way to a dinner party to bid me good-bye i shall dry my tears in your absence said the professor gaily with this glorious thought it is my auspicious hand that has given the first push to your fortune in the world go my friend when your sun shines in cumberland english proverb in the name of heaven make your hay marry one of the two young misses become honourable hartwright m p and when you are on the top of the ladder remember that pesca at the bottom has done it all i tried to laugh with my little friend over his parting jest but my spirits were not to be commanded something jarred in me almost painfully while he was speaking his light farewell words when i was left alone again nothing remained to be done but to walk to the hampstead cottage and bid my mother and sarah good-bye four the heat had been painfully oppressive all day and it was now a close and sultry night my mother and sister had spoken so many last words and had begged me to wait another five minutes so many times that it was nearly midnight when the servant locked the garden gate behind me i walked forward a few paces on the shortest way back to london then stopped and hesitated the moon was full and broad in the dark blue starless sky and the broken ground of the heath looked wild enough in the mysterious light to be hundreds of miles away from the great city that lay beneath it the idea of descending any sooner than i could help into the heat and gloom of london repelled me the prospect of going to bed in my airless chambers and the prospect of gradual suffocation seemed in my present restless frame of mind and body to be one and the same thing i determined to stroll home in the purer air by the most roundabout way i could take to follow the white winding paths across the lonely heath and to approach london through its most open suburb by striking into the finchley road 
and so getting back in the cool of the new morning by the western side of the Regent's Park. I wound my way down slowly over the heath, enjoying the divine stillness of the scene, and admiring the soft alternations of light and shade as they followed each other over the broken ground on every side of me. So long as I was proceeding through this first and prettiest part of my night walk, my mind remained passively open to the impressions produced by the view, and I thought but little on any subject. Indeed, so far as my own sensations were concerned, I can hardly say that I thought at all. But when I had left the heat, and had turned into the by-road, where there was less to see, the ideas naturally engendered by the approaching change in my habits and occupations gradually drew more and more of my attention exclusively to themselves. By the time I had arrived at the end of the road, I had become completely absorbed in my own fanciful visions of Limeridge House, of Mr. Fairley, and of the two ladies whose practice in the art of water-colour painting I was so soon to superintend. I had now arrived at that particular point of my walk where four roads met, the road to Hampstead, along which I had returned, the road to Finchley, the road to West End, and the road back to London. I had mechanically turned in this latter direction, and was strolling along the lonely high-road, idly wondering, I remember, what the Cumberland young ladies would look like, when, in one moment, every drop of blood in my body was brought to a stop by the touch of a hand laid lightly and suddenly on my shoulder from behind me. I turned on the instant, with my fingers tightening round the handle of my stick. There, in the middle of the broad bright high-road, there, as if it had that moment sprung out of the earth, or dropped from the heaven, stood the figure of a solitary woman, dressed from head to foot in white garments, her face bent in grave inquiry on mine, her hand pointing to the dark cloud over London, as I faced her. I was far too seriously startled by the suddenness with which this extraordinary apparition stood before me in the dead of night and in that lonely place to ask what she wanted. The strange woman spoke first. "'Is that the road to London?' she said. I looked attentively at her as she put that singular question to me. It was then nearly one o'clock. 
all I could discern distinctly by the moonlight, was a colourless, youthful face, meagre and sharp to look at about the cheeks and chin, large, grave, wistfully attentive eyes, nervous, uncertain lips, and light hair of a pale brownish-yellow hue. There was nothing wild, nothing immodest in her manner. It was quiet and self-controlled, a little melancholy, and a little touched by suspicion, not exactly the manner of a lady, and at the same time not the manner of a woman in the humblest rank of life. The voice, little as I had yet heard of it, had something curiously still and mechanical in its tones, and the utterance was remarkably rapid. She held a small bag in her hand, and her dress, bonnet, shawl, and gown, all of white, was, so far as I could guess, certainly not composed of very delicate or very expensive materials. Her figure was slight and rather above the average height, her gait and actions free from the slightest approach to extravagance. This was all that I could observe of her in the dim light and under the perplexingly strange circumstances of our meeting. What sort of a woman she was, and how she came to be out alone in the high road an hour after midnight, I altogether failed to guess. The one thing of which I felt certain was that the grossest of mankind could not have misconstrued her motive in speaking, even at that suspiciously late hour, and in that suspiciously lonely place. "'Did you hear me?' she said, still quietly and rapidly, and without the least fretfulness or impatience. "'I asked if that was the way to London.' "'Yes,' I replied, "'that is the way.' It leads to St. John's Wood and the Regent's Park. You must excuse my not answering you before. I was rather startled by your sudden appearance in the road, and I am even now quite unable to account for it. You don't suspect me of doing anything wrong, do you? I have done nothing wrong. I have met with an accident. I am very unfortunate in being here alone so late. Why do you suspect me of doing wrong? She spoke with unnecessary earnestness and agitation, and shrank back from me several paces. I did my best to reassure her. Pray don't suppose that I have any idea of suspecting you, I said, or any other wish than to be of assistance to you, if I can. I only wondered at your appearance in the road, because it seemed to me to be empty, the instant before I saw you. She turned and pointed back to a place at the junction of the road to London and the road to Hampstead, 
where there was a gap in the hedge. "'I heard you coming,' she said, "'and hid there to see what sort of man you were before I risked speaking. I doubted and feared about it till you passed, and then I was obliged to steal after you and touch you. Steal after me and touch me? Why not call to me? Strange, to say the least of it. May I trust you? she asked. You don't think the worse of me because I had met with an accident? She stopped in confusion, shifted her bag from one hand to the other, and sighed bitterly. The loneliness and helplessness of the woman touched me. The natural impulse to assist her and to spare her got the better of the judgment, the caution, the worldly tact, which an older, wiser, and colder man might have summoned to help him in this strange emergency. "'You may trust me for any harmless purpose,' I said. If it troubles you to explain your strange situation to me, don't think of returning to the subject again. I have no right to ask you for any explanations. Tell me how I can help you, and if I can, I will. You are very kind, and I am very, very thankful to have met you. The first touch of womanly tenderness that I had heard from her trembled in her voice as she said the words but no tears glistened in those large wistfully attentive eyes of hers which were still fixed on me i have only been in london once before she went on more and more rapidly and i know nothing about that side of it yonder can i get a fly or a carriage of any kind is it too late i don't know if you could show me where to get a fly and if you will only promise not to interfere with me and to let me leave you when and how i please i have a friend in london who will be glad to receive me i want nothing else will you promise she looked anxiously up and down the road shifted her bag again from one hand to the other repeated the words will you promise and looked hard in my face with a pleading fear and confusion that it troubled me to see what could i do here was a stranger utterly and helplessly at my mercy and that stranger a forlorn woman no house was near no one was passing whom i could consult and no earthly right existed on my part to give me a power of control over her even if i had known how to exercise it i traced these lines self-distrustfully with the shadows of after-events darkening the very paper i write on and still i say what could i do what i did do was to try and gain time by questioning her are you sure that your friend in london will receive you at such a late hour as this i said quite sure only say you will let me leave you when and how I please. Only say you won't interfere with me. Will you promise? As she repeated the words for the third time, she came close to me and laid her hand with a sudden gentle stealthiness on my bosom. 
a thin hand, a cold hand, when I removed it with mine, even on that sultry night. Remember that I was young. Remember that the hand which touched me was a woman's. Will you promise? Yes. One word. The little familiar word that is on everybody's lips every hour in the day. Oh, me! And I tremble now when I write it. We set our faces towards London and walked on together in the first still hour of the new day, I and this woman, whose name, whose character, whose story, whose objects in life, whose very presence by my side at that moment, were fathomless mysteries to me. It was like a dream. Was I Walter Hartwright? Was this the well-known uneventful road where holiday people strolled on Sundays? Had I really left? little more than an hour since, the quiet, decent, conventionally domestic atmosphere of my mother's cottage. I was too bewildered, too conscious also of a vague sense of something like self-reproach, to speak to my strange companion for some minutes. It was her voice again that first broke the silence between us, I want to ask you something, she said suddenly. Do you know many people in London? Yes, a great many. Many men of rank and title. There was an unmistakable tone of suspicion in the strange question. I hesitated about answering it. Some, I said, after a moment's silence. Many she came to a full stop and looked me searchingly in the face many men of the rank of baronet too much astonished to reply i questioned her in my turn why do you ask because i hope for my own sake there is one baronet that you don't know will you tell me his name i can't i don't i forget myself when i mention it she spoke loudly and almost fiercely raised her clenched hand in the air and shook it passionately then on a sudden controlled herself again and added in tones lowered to a whisper tell me which of them you know i could hardly refuse to humour her in such a trifle and i mentioned three names but two the names of fathers of families whose daughters i taught one the name of a bachelor who had once taken me a cruise in his yacht to make sketches for him aha you don't know him she said with a sigh of relief are you a man of rank and title yourself far from it i am only a drawing-master as the reply passed my lips a little bitterly perhaps she took my arm with the abruptness which characterized all her actions not a man of rank and title she repeated to herself thank god i may trust him i had hitherto contrived to master my curiosity out of consideration for my companion but it got the better of me now 
I am afraid you have serious reason to complain of some man of rank and title, I said. I am afraid the baronet, whose name you are unwilling to mention to me, has done you some grievous wrong. Is he the cause of your being out here at this strange time of night? Don't ask me, don't make me talk of it, she answered. I'm not fit now. I have been cruelly used and cruelly wronged. You will be kinder than ever if you will walk on fast and not speak to me. I sadly want to quiet myself if I can. We moved forward again at a quick pace, and for half an hour at least not a word passed on either side. From time to time, being forbidden to make any more inquiries, I stole a look at her face. It was always the same, the lips close shut, the brow frowning, the eyes looking straight forward, eagerly and yet absently. We had reached the first houses, and were close on the new Wesleyan college, before her set features relaxed, and she spoke once more. Do you live in London? she said. Yes. As I answered, it struck me that she might have formed some intention of appealing to me for assistance or advice, and that I ought to spare her a possible disappointment by warning her of my approaching absence from home. So I added, But to-morrow I shall be away from London for some time. I am going into the country. Where? she asked. North or south? North to Cumberland. Cumberland! She repeated the word tenderly. I wish I was going there too. I was once happy in Cumberland. I tried again to lift the veil that hung between this woman and me. Perhaps you were born, I said, in the beautiful lake country. No, she answered, I was born in Hampshire, but I once went to school for a little while in Cumberland. Lakes? I don't remember any lakes. It's Limeridge Village and Limeridge House I should like to see again. It was my turn now to stop suddenly. In the excited state of my curiosity at that moment, the chance reference to Mr. Fairley's place of residence on the lips of my strange companion staggered me with astonishment. "'Did you hear anybody calling after us?' she asked, looking up and down the road affrightedly, the instant I stopped. "'No, no. I was only struck by the name of Limeridge House. I heard it mentioned by some Cumberland people a few days since.' Ah, not my people. Mrs. Fairley is dead, and her husband is dead, and their little girl may be married and gone away by this time. I can't say who lives at Limeridge now. If any more are left there of that name, I only know I love them for Mrs. Fairley's sake. She seemed about to say more, but while she was speaking, we came within view of the turnpike, at the top of the avenue road. Her hand tightened round my arm, and she looked anxiously at the gate before us. 
Is the turnpike man looking out? she asked. He was not looking out. No one else was near the place when we passed through the gate. The sight of the gas lamps and houses seemed to agitate her and to make her impatient. This is London, she said. Do you see any carriage I can get? I am tired and frightened. I want to shut myself in and be driven away. I explained to her that we must walk a little further to get to a cab stand, unless we were fortunate enough to meet with an empty vehicle, and then tried to resume the subject of Cumberland. It was useless. That idea of shutting herself in and being driven away had now got full possession of her mind. She could think and talk of nothing else. We had hardly proceeded a third of the way down the avenue road when I saw a cab draw up at a house a few doors below us on the opposite side of the way. A gentleman got out and let himself in at the garden door. I hailed the cab as the driver mounted the box again. When we crossed the road, my companion's impatience increased to such an extent that she almost forced me to run. It's so late, she said. I am only in a hurry because it's so late. I can't take you, sir, if you're not going towards Tottenham Court Road, said the driver civilly when I opened the cab door. My horse is dead beat, and I can't get him no farther than the stable. Yes, yes, that will do for me. I'm going that way, I'm going that way. She spoke with breathless eagerness, and pressed by me into the cab. I had assured myself that the man was sober as well as civil, before I let her enter the vehicle, and now when she was seated inside... I entreated her to let me see her set down safely at her destination. No, 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 she said vehemently. I'm quite safe and quite happy now. If you are a gentleman, remember your promise. Let him drive on till I stop him. Thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you. My hand was on the cab door. She caught it in hers, kissed it, and pushed it away. The cab drove off at the same moment. I started into the road with some vague idea of stopping it again, I hardly knew why. Hesitated, from dread of frightening and distressing her, called at last, but not loudly enough to attract the driver's attention. The sound of the wheels grew fainter in the distance. The cab melted into the black shadows on the road. The woman in white was gone. Ten minutes or more had passed, I was still on the same side of the way, now mechanically walking forward a few paces, now stopping again absently. At one moment I found myself doubting the reality of my own adventure. At another I was perplexed and distressed by an uneasy sense of having done wrong, which yet left me confusedly ignorant of how I could have done right. I hardly knew where I was going, or what I meant to do next. I was conscious of nothing but the confusion of my own thoughts, when I was abruptly recalled to myself, awakened, I might almost say, 
by the sound of rapidly approaching wheels close behind me. I was on the dark side of the road, in the thick shadow of some garden trees, when I stopped to look round. On the opposite and lighter side of the way, a short distance below me, a policeman was strolling along in the direction of the Regent's Park. The carriage passed me, an open chaise driven by two men. Stop! cried one. There's a policeman. Let's ask him. The horse was instantly pulled up, a few yards beyond the dark place where I stood. Policeman! cried the first speaker. Have you seen a woman pass this way? What sort of woman, sir? A woman in a lavender-coloured gown. No, no, interposed the second man. The clothes we gave her were found on her bed. She must have gone away in the clothes she wore when she came to us. In white, policeman. A woman in white. I haven't seen her, sir. If you or any of your men meet with the woman, stop her, and send her in careful keeping to that address. I'll pay all expenses, and a fair reward into the bargain. The policeman looked at the card that was handed down to him. Why are we to stop her, sir? What has she done? Done? She has escaped from my asylum. <laughs> Don't forget. A woman in white. Drive on. End of chapter one. Chapter Two of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Five. She has escaped from my asylum. I cannot say with truth that the terrible inference which those words suggested flashed upon me like a new revelation. Some of the strange questions put to me by the woman in white, after my ill-considered promise to leave her free to act as she pleased, had suggested the conclusion either that she was naturally flighty and unsettled, or that some recent shock of terror had disturbed the balance of her faculties but the idea of absolute insanity, which we all associate with the very name of an asylum, had, I can honestly declare, never occurred to me in connection with her. I had seen nothing in her language or her actions to justify it at the time, and even with the new light thrown on her by the words which the stranger had addressed to the policeman, I could see nothing to justify it now. What had I done? Assisted the victim of the most horrible of all false imprisonments to escape, or cast loose on the wide world of London an unfortunate creature, whose actions it was my duty and every man's duty mercifully to control? I turned sick at heart, when the question occurred to me, and when I felt self-reproachfully that it was asked too late. In the disturbed state of my mind, 
it was useless to think of going to bed when i at last got back to my chambers in clement's inn before many hours elapsed it would be necessary to start on my journey to cumberland i sat down and tried first to sketch then to read but the woman in white got between me and my pencil between me and my book had the forlorn creature come to any harm that was my first thought though i shrank selfishly from confronting it other thoughts followed on which it was thus harrowing to dwell where had she stopped the cab what had become of her now had she been traced and captured by the men in the chaise or was she still capable of controlling her own actions and were we too following our widely parted roads towards one point in the mysterious future at which we were to meet once more it was a relief when the hour came to lock my door to bid farewell to london pursuits london pupils and london friends and to be in movement again towards new interests and a new life even the bustle and confusion at the railway terminus so wearisome and bewildering at other times roused me and did me good my travelling instructions directed me to go to carlisle and then to diverge by a branch railway which ran in the direction of the coast as a misfortune to begin with our engine broke down between lancaster and carlisle the delay occasioned by this accident caused me to be too late for the branch train by which i was to have gone on immediately i had to wait some hours and when a later train finally deposited me at the nearest station to limeridge house it was past ten and the night was so dark that i could hardly see my way to the pony chaise which mr fairley had ordered to be in waiting for me the driver was evidently discomposed by the lateness of my arrival he was in that state of highly respectful sulkiness which is peculiar to english servants we drove away slowly through the darkness in perfect silence the roads were bad and the dense obscurity of the night increased the difficulty of getting over the ground quickly it was by my watch nearly an hour and a half from the time of our leaving the station before i heard the sound of the sea in the distance and the crunch of our wheels on a smooth gravel drive we had passed one gate before entering the drive and we passed another before we drew up at the house i was received by a solemn man-servant out of livery was informed that the family had retired for the night and was then led into a large and lofty room where my supper was awaiting me in a forlorn manner at one extremity of a lonesome mahogany wilderness of dining-table 
I was too tired and out of spirits to eat or drink much, especially with the solemn servant waiting on me as elaborately as if a small dinner-party had arrived at the house instead of a solitary man. In a quarter of an hour I was ready to be taken up to my bedchamber. The solemn servant conducted me into a prettily furnished room, said, "'Breakfast at nine o'clock, sir,' looked all round him to see that everything was in its proper place, and noiselessly withdrew. "'What shall I see in my dreams to-night?' I thought to myself, as I put out the candle. "'The woman in white, or the unknown inhabitants of this Cumberland mansion?' It was a strange sensation to be sleeping in the house like a friend of the family, and yet not to know one of the inmates, even by sight. Six. When I rose the next morning and drew up my blind, the sea opened before me joyously under the broad August sunlight, and the distant coast of Scotland fringed the horizon with its lines of melting blue. The view was such a surprise and such a change to me, after my weary London experience of brick and mortar landscape, that I seemed to burst into a new life and a new set of thoughts the moment I looked at it. A confused sensation of having suddenly lost my familiarity with the past, without acquiring any additional clearness of idea in reference to the present or the future, took possession of my mind. Circumstances that were but a few days old faded back in my memory, as if they had happened months and months since. Pesca's quaint announcement of the means by which he had procured me my present employment, the farewell evening I had passed with my mother and sister, even my mysterious adventure on the way home from Hampstead had all become like events which might have occurred at some former epoch of my existence. Although the woman in white was still in my mind, the image of her seemed to have grown dull and faint already. A little before nine o'clock I descended to the ground floor of the house. The solemn manservant of the night before met me wandering among the passages, and compassionately showed me the way to the breakfast-room. My first glance round me, as the man opened the door, disclosed a well-furnished breakfast-table, standing in the middle of a long room with many windows in it. I looked from the table to the window farthest from me, and saw a lady standing at it, with her back turned towards me. The instant my eyes rested on her, I was struck by the rare beauty of her form, and by the unaffected grace of her attitude. Her figure was tall, yet not too tall, comely and well-developed, yet not fat. Her head set on her shoulders with an easy, pliant firmness. Her waist, 
perfection in the eyes of a man, for it occupied its natural place, it filled out its natural circle, it was visibly and delightfully undeformed by stays. She had not heard my entrance into the room, and I allowed myself the luxury of admiring her for a few moments, before I moved one of the chairs near me, as the least embarrassing means of attracting her attention. She turned towards me immediately. The easy elegance of every movement of her limbs and body, as soon as she began to advance from the far end of the room, set me in a flutter of expectation to see her face clearly. She left the window, and I said to myself, The lady is dark. She moved forward a few steps, and I said to myself, The lady is young. She approached nearer, and I said to myself, with a sense of surprise which words fail me to express, The lady is ugly. Never was the old conventional maxim that nature cannot err more flatly contradicted never was the fair promise of a lovely figure more strangely and startlingly belied by the face and head that crowned it the lady's complexion was almost swarthy and the dark down on her upper lip was almost a moustache she had a large firm masculine mouth and jaw prominent piercing resolute brown eyes and thick coal-black hair, growing unusually low down on her forehead. Her expression, bright, frank, and intelligent, appeared, while she was silent, to be altogether wanting in those feminine attractions of gentleness and pliability, without which the beauty of the handsomest woman alive is beauty incomplete. To see such a face as this, set on shoulders that a sculptor would have longed to model, to be charmed by the modest graces of action through which the symmetrical limbs betrayed their beauty when they moved, and then to be almost repelled by the masculine form and masculine look of the features in which the perfectly shaped figure ended was to feel a sensation oddly akin to the helpless discomfort familiar to us all in sleep, when we recognise yet cannot reconcile the anomalies and contradictions of a dream. Mr. Hartwright, said the lady interrogatively, her dark face lighting up with a smile and softening and growing womanly, the moment she began to speak. We resigned all hope of you last night, and went to bed as usual. Accept my apologies for our apparent want of attention, and allow me to introduce myself as one of your pupils. Shall we shake hands? I suppose we must come to it sooner or later, and why not sooner? These odd words of welcome were spoken in a clear, ringing, pleasant voice. The offered hand rather large but beautifully formed, was given to me with the easy, unaffected self-reliance of a highly-bred woman. We sat down together at the breakfast-table, 
in as cordial and customary a manner as if we had known each other for years and had met at limeridge house to talk over old times by previous appointment i hope you come here good-humouredly determined to make the best of your position continued the lady you will have to begin this morning by putting up with no other company at breakfast than mine my sister is in her own room nursing that essentially feminine malady a slight headache and her old governess mrs vesey is charitably attending on her with restorative tea my uncle mr fairley never joins us at any of our meals he is an invalid and keeps bachelor state in his own apartments there is nobody else in the house but me two young ladies have been staying here but they went away yesterday in despair and no wonder all through their visit in consequence of mr fairley's invalid condition we produced no such convenience in the house as a flirtable danceable small talkable creature of the male sex and the consequence was we did nothing but quarrel especially at dinner-time how can you expect four women to dine together alone every day and not quarrel we are such fools we can't entertain each other at table you see i don't think much of my own sex mr hartwright which will you have tea or coffee no woman does think much of her own sex although few of them confess it as freely as i do dear me you look puzzled why are you wondering what you will have for breakfast or are you surprised at my careless way of talking in the first case i advise you as a friend to have nothing to do with that cold ham at your elbow and to wait till the omelette comes in in the second case i will give you some tea to compose your spirits and do all a woman can which is very little by the by to hold my tongue she handed me my cup of tea laughing gaily her light flow of talk and her lively familiarity of manner with a total stranger were accompanied by an unaffected naturalness and an easy inborn confidence in herself and her position which would have secured her the respect of the most audacious man breathing while it was impossible to be formal and reserved in her company it was more than impossible to take the faintest vestige of a liberty with her even in thought i felt this instinctively even while i caught the infection of her own bright gaiety of spirits even while i did my best to answer her in her own frank lively way yes yes she said when i had suggested the only explanation i could offer to account for my perplexed looks i understand you are such a perfect stranger in the house that you are puzzled by my familiar references to the worthy inhabitants natural enough i ought to have thought of it before at any rate i can set it right now suppose i begin with myself so as to get done with that part of the subject as soon as possible my name is marion halcombe 
and I am as inaccurate as women usually are, in calling Mr. Fairley my uncle, and Miss Fairley my sister. My mother was twice married, the first time to Mr. Halcombe, my father, the second time to Mr. Fairley, my half-sister's father. Except that we are both orphans, we are in every respect as unlike each other as possible. My father was a poor man, and Miss Fairley's father was a rich man. I have got nothing, and she has a fortune. I am dark and ugly, and she is fair and pretty. Everybody thinks me crabbed and odd, with perfect justice, and everybody thinks her sweet-tempered and charming, with more justice still. In short, she is an angel, and I am... <laughs> Try some of that marmalade, Mr. Hartwright, and finish the sentence in the name of female propriety for yourself. What am I to tell you about Mr. Fairley? Upon my honour, I hardly know. He is sure to send for you after breakfast, and you can study him for yourself. In the meantime, I may inform you first that he is the late Mr. Fairley's younger brother, secondly, that he is a single man, and thirdly, that he is Miss Fairley's guardian. I won't live without her, and she can't live without me. And that is how I come to be at Limeridge House. My sister and I are honestly fond of each other, which, you will say, is perfectly unaccountable under the circumstances, and I quite agree with you, but so it is. You must please both of us, Mr. Hartwright, or please neither of us. And what is still more trying, you'll be thrown entirely upon our society. Mrs. Basie is an excellent person, who possesses all the cardinal virtues, and counts for nothing. And Mr. Fairley is too great an invalid to be a companion for anybody. I don't know what is the matter with him, and the doctors don't know what is the matter with him, and he doesn't know himself what is the matter with him. We all say it's on the nerves, and we none of us know what we mean when we say it. However, I advise you to humour his little peculiarities when you see him to-day. Admire his collection of coins, prints, and watercolour drawings, and you will win his heart. Upon my word, if you can be contented with a quiet country life, I don't see why you should not get on very well here. From breakfast to lunch, Mr. Fairley's drawings will occupy you. After lunch, Miss Fairley and I shoulder our sketchbooks and go out to misrepresent nature under your directions. Drawing is her favourite when mine, not mine. Women can't draw. Their minds are too flighty, and their eyes are too inattentive. No matter, and my sister likes it, so I waste paint and spoil paper for her sake, as composedly as any woman in England. As for the evenings, I think we can help you through them. Miss Fairley plays delightfully. For my own poor part, I don't know one note of music from the other, but I can match you a chess, backgammon, ecarte, 
and with the inevitable female drawbacks, even at billiards as well. What do you think of the programme? Can you reconcile yourself to our quiet, regular life? Or do you mean to be restless, and secretly thirst for change and adventure in the humdrum atmosphere of Limeridge House? She had run on thus far, in her gracefully bantering way, with no other interruptions on my part than the unimportant replies which politeness required of me. The turn of the expression, however, in her last question, or rather the one chance word adventure, lightly as it fell from her lips, recalled my thoughts to my meeting with the woman in white, and urged me to discover the connection which the stranger's own reference to Mrs. Fairley informed me must once have existed between the nameless fugitive from the asylum and the former mistress of Limeridge House. Even if I were the most restless of mankind, I said, I should be in no danger of thirsting after adventures for some time to come. The very night before I arrived at this house, I met with an adventure, and the wonder and excitement of it, I can assure you, Miss Halcombe, will last me for the whole term of my stay in Cumberland, if not for a much longer period. You don't say so, Mr. Hartwright. May I hear it? You have a claim to hear it. The chief person in the adventure was a total stranger to me, and may perhaps be a total stranger to you. But she certainly mentioned the name of the late Mrs. Fairley in terms of the sincerest gratitude and regard mentioned my mother's name you interest me indescribably pray go on i at once related the circumstances under which i had met the woman in white exactly as they had occurred and i repeated what she had said to me about mrs fairley and limeridge house word for word miss halcombe's bright resolute eyes looked eagerly into mine from the beginning of the narrative to the end. Her face expressed vivid interest and astonishment, but nothing more. She was evidently as far from knowing of any clue to the mystery as I was myself. "'Are you quite sure of those words referring to my mother?' she asked. "'Quite sure,' I replied. "'Whoever she may be, the woman was once at school in the village of Limeridge.' was treated with a special kindness by Mrs. Fairley, and, in grateful remembrance of that kindness, feels an affectionate interest in all surviving members of the family. She knew that Mrs. Fairley and her husband were both dead, and she spoke of Miss Fairley as if they had known each other when they were children. You said, I think, that she denied belonging to this place. Yes. She told me she came from Hampshire, and you entirely failed to find out her name. Entirely. Very strange. I think you are quite justified, Mr. Hartwright, in giving the poor creature her liberty, for she seems to have done nothing in your presence to show herself unfit to enjoy it. But I wish you had been a little more resolute about finding out her name. We must really clear up this mystery in some way. You had better not speak of it yet to Mr. Fairy or to my sister. 
They are both of them, I am certain, quite as ignorant of who the woman is, and of what her past history in connection with us can be, as I am myself. But they are also, in widely different ways, rather nervous and sensitive, and you would only fidget one and alarm the other to no purpose. As for myself, I am all aflame with curiosity, and I devote my whole energies to the business of discovery from this moment. When my mother came here, after her second marriage, she certainly established the village school, just as it exists at the present time. But the old teachers are all dead or gone elsewhere, and no enlightenment is to be hoped for from that quarter. The only other alternative I can think of at this point we were interrupted by the entrance of the servant with a message from Mr. Fairley, intimating that he would be glad to see me as soon as I had done breakfast. "'Wait in the hall,' said Miss Halcombe, answering the servant for me, in her quick, ready way. "'Mr. Hartwright will come out directly.' "'I was about to say,' she went on, addressing me again, that my sister and I have a large collection of my mother's letters, addressed to my father and to hers. In the absence of any other means of getting information, I will pass the morning in looking over my mother's correspondence with Mr. Fairley. He was fond of London, and was constantly away from his country home, and she was accustomed at such times to write and report to him how things went on at Limeridge. Her letters are full of references to the school in which she took so strong an interest, and I think it more than likely that I may have discovered something when we meet again. The luncheon hour is two, Mr. Hartwright. I shall have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister by that time, and we will occupy the afternoon in driving round the neighbourhood and showing you all our pet points of view. Till two o'clock, then, farewell. She nodded to me with the lively grace, the delightful refinement of familiarity, which characterised all that she did and all that she said, and disappeared by a door at the lower end of the room. As soon as she had left me, I turned my steps towards the hall, and followed the servant on my way, for the first time, to the presence of Mr. Fairley. 7. My conductor led me upstairs, into a passage which took us back to the bedchamber in which I had slept during the past night, and, opening the door next to it, begged me to look in. "'I have my master's orders to show you your own sitting-room, sir,' said the man, "'and to inquire if you approve of the situation and the like. I must have been hard to please indeed, if I had not approved of the room, and of everything about it. The bow-window looked out on the same lovely view which I had admired in the morning from my bedroom. The furniture was the perfection of luxury and beauty. The table in the centre was bright with gaily bound books elegant conveniences for writing, and beautiful flowers. The second table, near the window, 
was covered with all the necessary materials for mounting watercolour drawings, and had a little easel attached to it, which I could expand or fold up at will. The walls were hung with gaily tinted chintz, and the floor was spread with Indian matting in maize colour and red. It was the prettiest and most luxurious little sitting-room I had ever seen, and I admired it with the warmest enthusiasm. The solemn servant was far too highly trained to betray the slightest satisfaction. He bowed with icy deference when my terms of eulogy were all exhausted, and silently opened the door for me to go out into the passage again. We turned a corner, and entered a long second passage, ascended a short flight of stairs at the end, crossed a small circular upper hall, and stopped in front of a door covered with dark bays. The servant opened this door, and led me on a few yards to a second, opened that also, and disclosed two curtains of pale sea-green silk hanging before us, raised one of them noiselessly, softly uttered the words, Mr. Hartwright, and left me. I found myself in a large lofty room, with a magnificent carved ceiling, and with a carpet over the floor, so thick and soft, that it felt like piles of velvet under my feet. One side of the room was occupied by a long bookcase of some rare inlaid wood that was quite new to me. It was not more than six feet high, and the top was adorned with statuettes in marble, ranged at regular distances one from the other. On the opposite side stood two antique cabinets, and between them and above them hung a picture of the Virgin and Child, protected by glass, and bearing Raphael's name on the gilt tablet at the bottom of the frame. On my right hand and on my left, as I stood inside the door, were chiffoniers and little stands in boule and marqueterie, loaded with figures in Dresden china, with rare vases, ivory ornaments, and toys and curiosities that sparkled at all points with gold, silver, and precious stones. At the lower end of the room, opposite to me, the windows were concealed, and the sunlight was tempered by large blinds of the same pale sea-green colour as the curtains over the door. The light thus produced was deliciously soft, mysterious, and subdued. It fell equally upon all the objects in the room. It helped to intensify the deep silence, and the air of profound seclusion that possessed the place, and it surrounded, with an appropriate halo of repose, the solitary figure of the master of the house, leaning back 
listlessly composed in a large easy-chair, with a reading-easel fastened on one of its arms, and a little table on the other. If a man's personal appearance, when he is out of his dressing-room, and when he has passed forty, can be accepted as a safe guide to his time of life, which is more than doubtful, Mr. Fairley's age, when I saw him, might have been reasonably computed at over fifty and under sixty years. His beardless face was thin, warm, and transparently pale, but not wrinkled. His nose was high and hooked. His eyes were of a dim greyish-blue, large, prominent, and rather red round the rims of the eyelids. His hair was scanty, soft to look at, and of that light sandy colour which is the last to disclose its own changes towards grey. He was dressed in a dark frock-coat of some substance much thinner than cloth, and in waistcoat and trousers of spotless white, his feet were effeminately small, and were clad in buff-coloured silk stockings, and little womanish bronze-leather slippers. Two rings adorned his white, delicate hands, the value of which even my inexperienced observation detected to be all but priceless. Upon the whole, he had a frail, languidly fretful, over-refined look, something singularly and unpleasantly delicate in its association with a man, and, at the same time, something which could by no possibility have looked natural and appropriate if it had been transferred to the personal appearance of a woman. My morning's experience of Miss Holcombe had predisposed me to be pleased with everybody in the house. But my sympathies shut themselves up resolutely at the first sight of Mr. Fairley. On approaching nearer to him, I discovered that he was not so entirely without occupation as I had at first supposed. Placed amid the other rare and beautiful objects, on a large round table near him, was a dwarf cabinet in ebony and silver, containing coins of all shapes and sizes, set out in little drawers lined with dark purple velvet. One of these drawers lay on the small table attached to his chair, and near it were some tiny jeweller's brushes, a washed leather stump, and a little bottle of liquid, all waiting to be used in various ways for the removal of any accidental impurities which might be discovered on the coins. His frail white fingers were listlessly toying with something which looked to my uninstructed eyes like a dirty pewter medal with ragged edges when I advanced within a respectful distance of his chair, and stopped to make my bow. 
so glad to possess you at limeridge mr hartwright he said in a querulous croaking voice which combined in anything but an agreeable manner a discordantly high tone with a drowsily languid utterance pray sit down and don't trouble yourself to move the chair please in the wretched state of my nerves movement of any kind is exquisitely painful to me have you seen your studio will it do i have just come from seeing the room mr fairley and i assure you he stopped me in the middle of the sentence by closing his eyes and holding up one of his white hands imploringly i paused in astonishment and the croaking voice honoured me with this explanation pray excuse me but could you contrive to speak in a lower key in the wretched state of my nerves loud sound of any kind is indescribable torture to me you will pardon an invalid i only say to you what the lamentable state of my health obliges me to say to everybody yes and you really like the room i could wish for nothing prettier and nothing more comfortable i answered dropping my voice and beginning to discover already that Mr. Fairley's selfish affectation and Mr. Fairley's wretched nerves meant one and the same thing. So glad. You will find your position here, Mr. Hartwright, properly recognised. There is none of the horrid English barbarity of feeling about the social position of an artist in this house. So much of my early life has been passed abroad that i have quite cast my insular skin in that respect i wish i could say the same of the gentry detestable word but i suppose i must use it of the gentry in the neighbourhood they are sad goths in art mr hartwright people i do assure you who would have opened their eyes in astonishment if they had seen charles the fifth pick up titian's brush for him do you mind putting this tray of coins back in the cabinet and giving me the next one to it in the wretched state of my nerve exertion of any kind is unspeakably disagreeable to me yes thank you as a practical commentary on the liberal social theory which he had just favoured me by illustrating mr fairley's cool request rather amused me i put back one drawer and gave him the other with all possible politeness he began trifling with the new set of coins and the little brushes immediately languidly looking at them and admiring them all the time he was speaking to me 
a thousand thanks and a thousand excuses do you like coins yes so glad we have another taste in common besides our taste for art now about the pecuniary arrangements between us do tell me are they satisfactory most satisfactory mr fairley so glad and what next ah, i remember yes in reference to the consideration which you are good enough to accept for giving me the benefit of your accomplishments in art my steward will wait on you at the end of the first week to ascertain your wishes and oh, what next curious is it not i had a great deal more to say and i appear to have quite forgotten it do you mind touching the bell in that corner yes thank you i rang and a new servant noiselessly made his appearance a foreigner with a set smile and perfectly brushed hair a valet every inch of him louis said mr fairley dreamily brushing the tips of his fingers with one of the tiny brushes for the coins i made some entries in my tablets this morning find my tablets a thousand pardons mr hartwright i'm afraid i bore you as he wearily closed his eyes again before i could answer and as he did most assuredly bore me i sat silent and looked up at the madonna and child by raphael in the meantime the valet left the room and returned shortly with a little ivory book mr fairley after first relieving himself by a gentle sigh let the book drop open with one hand and held up the tiny brush with the other as a sign to the servant to wait for further orders yes just so said mr fairley consulting the tablets louis take down that portfolio he pointed as he spoke to several portfolios placed near the window on mahogany stands no not the one with the green back that contains my rembrandt etchings mr hartwright do you like etching yes so glad we have another taste in common the portfolio with the red back louis don't drop it you have no idea of the tortures i should suffer mr hartwright if louis dropped that portfolio is it safe on the chair do you think it's safe mr hartwright yes so glad will you oblige me by looking at the drawing if you really think they are quite safe louis go away what an ass you are don't you see me holding the tablet do you suppose i want to hold them then why not relieve me of the tablets without being told 
a thousand pardons mr hartright servants are such asses are they not do tell me what do you think of the drawings they have come from a sale in a shocking state i thought they smelt of horrid dealers and brokers fingers when i looked at them last can you undertake them although my nerves were not delicate enough to detect the odour of plebeian fingers which had offended mr fairley's nostrils my taste was sufficiently educated to enable me to appreciate the value of the drawings while i turned them over they were for the most part really fine specimens of english watercolour art and they had deserved much better treatment at the hands of their former possessor than they appeared to have received the drawings i answered require careful straining and mounting and in my opinion they are well worth i beg your pardon interposed mr fairley do you mind my closing my eyes while you speak even this light is too much for them yes i was about to say that the drawings are well worth all the time and trouble mr fairley suddenly opened his eyes again and rolled them with an expression of helpless alarm in the direction of the window i entreat you to excuse me mr hartwright he said in a feeble flutter but surely i hear some horrid children in the garden my private garden below i can't say mr fairley i heard nothing myself oblige me you have been so very good in humouring my poor nerves oblige me by lifting up a corner of the blind don't let the sun in on me mr hartwright have you got the blind up yes then will you be so very kind as to look into the garden and make quite sure i complied with this new request the garden was carefully walled in all round not a human creature large or small appeared in any part of the sacred seclusion i reported that gratifying fact to mr fairley a thousand thanks my fancy i suppose there are no children thank heaven in the house but the servant persons born without nerves will encourage the children from the village such brats oh dear me such brats shall i confess it mr hartwright i sadly want to reform in the construction of children nature's only idea seems to be to make them machines for the production of incessant noise surely our delightful raffaello's conception is infinitely preferable he pointed to the picture of the madonna the upper part of which represented the conventional cherubs of italian art celestially provided with sitting accommodation for their chins on balloons of buff-coloured cloud quite a model family said mr fairley leering at the cherub such nice round faces and such nice 
soft wings and nothing else no dirty little legs to run about on no noisy little lungs to scream with how immeasurably superior to the existing construction i will close my eyes again if you will allow me and you really can manage the drawing so glad is there anything else to settle if there is i think i have forgotten it shall we ring for louis again being by this time quite as anxious on my side as mr fairley evidently was on his to bring the interview to a speedy conclusion i thought i would try to render the summoning of the servant unnecessary by offering the requisite suggestion on my own responsibility the only point mr fairley that remains to be discussed i said refers i think to the instruction in sketching which i am engaged to communicate to the two young ladies ah just so said mr fairley i wish i felt strong enough to go into that part of the arrangement but i don't the ladies who profit by your kind services mr hartright must settle and decide and so on for themselves my niece is fond of your charming aunt she knows just enough about it to be conscious of her own sad defects please take pains without yes is there anything else no we quite understand each other don't we i have no right to detain you any longer from your delightful pursuit have i so pleasant to have settled everything such a sensible relief to have done business do you mind ringing for louis to carry the portfolio to your own room i will carry it there myself mr fairley if you will allow me will you really are you strong enough how nice to be so strong are you sure you won't drop it so glad to possess you at limeridge mr hartwright i am such a sufferer that i hardly dare hope to enjoy much of your society would you mind taking great pains not to let the doors bang and not to drop the portfolio thank gently with the curtains please the slightest noise from them goes through me like a knife yes good morning when the sea-green curtains were closed and when the two baize doors were shut behind me i stopped for a moment in the little circular hall beyond and drew a long luxurious breath of relief it was like coming to the surface of the water after deep diving to find myself once more on the outside of mr fairley's room as soon as i was comfortably established for the morning in my pretty little studio the first resolution at which i arrived was to turn my steps no more in the direction of the apartments occupied by the master of the house except in the very improbable event of his honouring me 
with a special invitation to pay him another visit. Having settled this satisfactory plan of future conduct in reference to Mr. Fairley, I soon recovered the serenity of temper of which my employer's haughty familiarity and impudent politeness had for the moment deprived me. The remaining hours of the morning passed away pleasantly enough in looking over the drawings, arranging them in sets, trimming their ragged edges, and accomplishing the other necessary preparations in anticipation of the business of mounting them. I ought perhaps to have made more progress than this, but as the luncheon time drew near, I grew restless and unsettled, and felt unable to fix my attention on work, even though that work was only of the humble manual kind. At two o'clock I descended again to the breakfast-room a little anxiously. Expectations of some interest were connected with my approaching reappearance in that part of the house. My introduction to Miss Fairley was now close at hand, and if Miss Halcombe's search through her mother's letters had produced the result which she anticipated, the time had come for clearing up the mystery of the woman in white. End of chapter 2 Chapter Three of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Eight. When I entered the room, I found Miss Harcombe and an elderly lady seated at the luncheon table. The elderly lady, when I was presented to her, approved to be Miss Fowler's former governess, Mrs. Vesey, who had been briefly described to me by my lively companion at the breakfast-table as possessed of all the cardinal virtues and counting for nothing. I can do little more than offer my humble testimony to the truthfulness of Miss Halcombe's sketch of the old lady's character. Mrs. Vesey looked at the personification of human composure and female amiability. A calm enjoyment of a calm existence beamed in drowsy smiles on her plump, placid face. Some of us rush through life, and some of us saunter through life. Mrs. Vesey sat through life, sat in the house early and late, sat in the garden, sat in unexpected window-seats in passages, sat on a camp-stool, when her friends tried to take her out walking, sat before she looked at anything, before she talked of anything, before she answered yes or no to the commonest question, always with the same serene smile on her lips, the same vacantly attentive turn of the head, the same snugly comfortable position of her hands and arms under every possible change of domestic circumstances, a mild a compliant, an unutterably tranquil and harmless old lady, who never by any chance suggested the idea that she had been actually alive since the hour of her birth. Nature has so much to do in this world, 
and is engaged in generating such a vast variety of coexistent productions that she must surely be now and then too flurried and confused to distinguish between the different processes that she is carrying on at the same time starting from this point of view it will always remain my private persuasion that nature was absorbed in making cabbages when mrs vesey was born and that the good lady suffered the consequences of a vegetable preoccupation in the mind of the mother of us all and now mrs vesey said miss halcombe looking brighter sharper and readier than ever by contrast with the undemonstrative old lady at her side what will you have a cutlet mrs vesey crossed her dimpled hands on the edges of the table smiled placidly and said yes dear what is that opposite mr hartright a boiled chicken is it not i thought you liked boiled chicken better than cutlet mrs vesey mrs vesey took her dimpled hands off the edge of the table and crossed them on her lap instead nodded contemplatively at the boiled chicken and said yes dear well but which will you have to-day shall mr hartright give you some chicken or shall i give you some cutlet mrs vesey put one of her dimpled hands back again on the edge of the table hesitated drowsily and said which you please dear mercy on me it's a question for your taste my good lady not for mine i suppose you have a little of both and suppose you begin with the chicken because mr hartright looks devoured by anxiety to cow for you mrs vesey put the other dimpled hand back on the edge of the table brightened dimly one moment went out again the next bowed obediently and said if you please sir surely a mild a compliant an unutterably tranquil and harmless old lady but enough perhaps for the present of mrs vesey all this time there were no signs of miss fairley we finished our luncheon and still she never appeared miss halcombe whose quick eye nothing escaped noticed the looks that i cast from time to time in the direction of the door i understand you mr hartright she said you are wondering what has become of your other pupil as she has been downstairs and has got over her headache but has not sufficiently recovered her appetite to join us at lunch if you will put yourself under my charge i think i can undertake to find her somewhere in the garden she took up a parasol lying on a chair near her and led the way out by a long window at the bottom of the room which opened on to the lawn it is almost unnecessary to say that we left mrs vesey still seated at the table with her dimpled hands still crossed on the edge of it apparently settled in that position for the rest of the afternoon as we crossed the lawn miss harcombe looked at me significantly and shook her head that mysterious adventure of yours she said still remains involved in its own appropriate midnight darkness i have been all the morning looking over my mother's letters and i have made no discoveries yet however don't despair mr hartright 
this is a matter of curiosity, and you have got a woman for your ally. Under such conditions, success is certain sooner or later. The letters are not exhausted. I have three packets still left and you may confidently rely on my spending the whole evening over them. Here, then, was one of my anticipations of the morning still unfulfilled. I began to wonder next whether my introduction to Miss Fairley would disappoint the expectations that I had been forming of her since breakfast time. And how did you get on with Mr. Fairley? inquired Miss Halcombe as we left the lawn and turned into a shrubbery. Was he particularly nervous this morning? Uh, never mind considering about your answer, Mr. Hartwright. The mere fact of your being obliged to consider is enough for me. I see in your face that he was particularly nervous, and as I am amiably unwilling to throw you into the same condition, I ask no more. We turned off into a winding path while she was speaking, and approached a pretty summer-house, built of wood, in the form of a miniature Swiss chalet. The one room of the summer-house, as we ascended the steps of the door, was occupied by a young lady. She was standing near a rustic table, looking out at the inland view of moor and hill, presented by a gap in the trees, and absently turning over the leaves of a little sketch-book that lay at her side. This was Miss Fairley. How can I describe her? How can I separate her from my own sensations, and from all that has happened in the later time? How can I see her again, as she looked when my eyes first rested on her, as she should look now to the eyes that are about to see her in these pages? The watercolour drawing that I made of Laura Fairley at an after-period, in the place and attitude in which I first saw her, lies on my desk while I write. I look at it, and there dawns upon me brightly, from the dark greenish-brown background of the summer-house, a light, youthful figure, clothed in a simple muslin dress, the pattern of it formed by broad alternate stripes of delicate blue and white. A scarf of the same material sits crisply and closely round her shoulders, and a little straw hat of the natural colour, plainly and sparingly trimmed with ribbon to match the gown, covers her head, and throws its soft pearly shadow over the upper part of her face. Her hair is of so faint and pale a brown, not flaxen, and yet almost as light, not golden, and yet almost as glossy, that it nearly melts, here and there, into the shadow of the hat. It is plainly parted and drawn back over her ears, and the line of it ripples naturally as it crosses her forehead. The eyebrows are rather darker than the hair, and the eyes are of that soft, limpid, turquoise blue, so often sung by the poets, so seldom seen in real life. Lovely eyes in colour, lovely eyes in form, large and tender and quietly thoughtful, 
but beautiful above all things in the clear truthfulness of look that dwells in their inmost depths and shines through all their changes of expression with the light of a purer and a better world the charm most gently and yet most distinctly expressed which they shed over the whole face so covers and transforms its little natural human blemishes elsewhere that it is difficult to estimate the relative merits and defects of the other features it is hard to see that the lower part of the face is too delicately refined away towards the chin to be in full and fair proportion with the upper part that the nose in escaping the aquiline bend always hard and cruel in a woman no matter how abstractedly perfect it may be has erred a little in the other extreme and has missed the ideal straightness of line and that the sweet sensitive lips are subject to a slight nervous contraction when she smiles which draws them upward a little at one corner towards the cheek it might be possible to note these blemishes in another woman's face but it is not easy to dwell on them in hers so subtly are they connected with all that is individual and characteristic in her expression and so closely does the expression depend for its full play and life in every other feature on the moving impulse of the eyes does my poor portrait of her my fond patient labour of long and happy days show me these things ah how few of them are in the dim mechanical drawing and how many in the mind with which i regard it a fair delicate girl in a pretty light dress trifling with the leaves of a sketch-book while she looks up from it with truthful innocent blue eyes that is all the drawing can say or perhaps that even the deeper reach of thought and pen can say in their language either the woman who first gives life light and form to our shadowy conceptions of beauty fills a void in our spiritual nature that has remained unknown to us till she appeared sympathies that lie too deep for words too deep almost for thoughts are touched at such times by other charms than those which the senses feel and which the resources of expression can realize the mystery which underlies the beauty of women is never raised above the reach of all expression until it is claimed kindred with the deeper mystery in our own souls then and then only has it passed beyond the narrow region on which light falls in this world from the pencil and the pen think of her as you thought of the first woman who quickened the pulses within you that the rest of her sex had no art to stir let the kind candid blue eyes meet yours as they met mine with the one matchless look which we both remember so well let her voice speak the music that you once loved best attuned as sweetly to your ear as to mine let her footstep as she comes and goes in these pages 
be like that other footstep to whose airy fall your own heart once beat time take her as the visionary nursling of your own fancy and she will grow upon you all the more clearly as the living woman who dwells in mine among the sensations that crowded on me when my eyes first looked upon her familiar sensations which we all know which spring to life in most of our hearts die again in so many and renew their bright existence in so few there was one that troubled and perplexed me one that seemed strangely inconsistent and unaccountably out of place in miss fairley's presence mingling with the vivid impression produced by the charm of her fair face and head her sweet expression and her winning simplicity of manner was another impression which in a shadowy way suggested to me the idea of something wanting at one time it seemed like something wanting in her at another like something wanting in myself which hindered me from understanding her as i ought the impression was always strongest in the most contradictory manner when she looked at me or in other words when i was most conscious of the harmony and charm of her face and yet at the same time most troubled by the sense of an incompleteness which it was impossible to discover something wanting something wanting and where it was and what it was i could not say the effect of this curious caprice of fancy as i thought it then was not of a nature to set me at my ease during a first interview with miss fairley the few kind words of welcome which she spoke found me hardly self-possessed enough to thank her in the customary phrases of reply observing my hesitation and no doubt attributing it naturally enough to some momentary shyness on my part miss harcombe took the business of talking as easily and readily as usual into her own hands look there mr hartright she said pointing to the sketch-book on the table and to the little delicate wandering hand that was still trifling with it surely you will acknowledge that your model pupil is found at last the moment she hears that you are in the house she seizes her inestimable sketch-book looks universal nature straight in the face and longs to begin miss fairley laughed with a ready good humour which broke out as brightly as if it had been part of the sunshine above us over her lovely face i must not take credit to myself where no credit is due she said her clear truthful blue eyes looking alternately at miss harcombe and at me fond as i am of drawing i am so conscious of my own ignorance that i am more afraid than anxious to begin now i know you are here mr hartwright i find myself looking over my sketches as i used to look over my lessons when i was a little girl and when i was sadly afraid that i should turn out not fit to be heard she made the confession very prettily and simply and with quaint childish earnestness 
drew the sketch-book away close to her own side of the table. Miss Halcombe cut the knot of the little embarrassment forthwith, in her resolute, downright way. Good, bad, or indifferent, she said, the pupil's sketches must pass through the fiery ordeal of the master's judgment, and there's an end of it. Suppose we take them with us in the carriage, Laura, and let Mr. Hartwright see them for the first time, under circumstances of perpetual jolting and interruption, if we can only confuse him all through the drive between nature as it is when he looks up at the view, and nature as it is not, when he looks down again at our sketch-books, we shall drive him into the last desperate refuge of paying us compliments, and shall slip through his professional fingers with our pet feathers of vanity all unruffled. "'I hope Mr. Hartwright will pay me no compliments,' said Miss Fairley as we all left the summer-house. "'May I venture to inquire why you express that hope?' I asked. "'Because I shall believe all that you say to me,' she answered simply. In those few words she unconsciously gave me the key to her whole character, to that generous trust in others which in her nature grew innocently out of the sense of her own truth. I only knew it intuitively then. I know it by experience now. We merely waited to rouse good Mrs. Vesey from the place which she still occupied at the deserted luncheon-table, before we entered the open carriage for our promised drive. The old lady and Miss Halcombe occupied the back seat, and Miss Fairley and I sat together in front, with the sketch-book open between us, fairly exhibited at last, to my professional eyes. All serious criticism on the drawings, even if I had been disposed to volunteer it, was rendered impossible by Miss Halcombe's lively resolution to see nothing but the ridiculous side of the fine arts, as practised by herself, her sister, and ladies in general. I can remember the conversation that passed far more easily than the sketches that I mechanically looked over. That part of the talk, especially, in which Miss Fairley took any share, is still as vividly impressed on my memory as if I had heard it only a few hours ago. Yes, let me acknowledge that on this first day I let the charm of her presence lure me from the recollection of myself and my position. The most trifling of the questions that she put to me, on the subject of using her pencil and mixing her colours, the slightest alterations of expression in the lovely eyes that looked into mine with such an earnest desire to learn all that I could teach, and to discover all that I could show, attracted more of my attention than the finest view we passed through, or the grandest changes of light and shade, as they flowed into each other over the waving moorland and the level beach. At any time, and under any circumstances of human interest, is it not strange to see how little real hold the objects of the natural world amid which we live can gain on our hearts and minds? We go to nature for comfort in trouble, and sympathy in joy, only in books. 
admiration of those beauties of the inanimate world which modern poetry so largely and so eloquently describes is not even in the best of us one of the original instincts of our nature as children we none of us possess it no uninstructed man or woman possesses it those whose lives are most exclusively passed amid the ever-changing wonders of sea and land are also those who are most universally insensible to every aspect of nature not directly associated with the human interest of their calling our capacity of appreciating the beauties of the earth we live on is in truth one of the civilized accomplishments which we all learn as an art and more that very capacity is rarely practised by any of us except when our minds are most indolent and most unoccupied how much share have the attractions of nature ever had in the pleasurable or painful interests and emotions of ourselves or our friends what space do they ever occupy in the thousand little narratives of personal experience which pass every day by word of mouth from one of us to the other all that our minds can compass all that our hearts can learn can be accomplished with equal certainty equal profit and equal satisfaction to ourselves in the poorest as in the richest prospect that the face of the earth can show there is surely a reason for this want of inborn sympathy between the creature and the creation around it a reason which may perhaps be found in the widely differing destinies of man and his earthly sphere the grandest mountain prospect that the eye can range over is appointed to annihilation the smallest human interest that the pure heart can feel is appointed to immortality we had been out nearly three hours when the carriage again passed through the gates of limeridge house on our way back i had let the ladies settle for themselves the first point of view which they were to sketch under my instructions on the afternoon of the next day when they withdrew to dress for dinner and when i was alone again in my little sitting-room my spirit seemed to leave me on a sudden i felt ill at ease and dissatisfied with myself i hardly knew why perhaps i was now conscious for the first time of having enjoyed our drive too much in the character of a guest and too little in the character of a drawing-master perhaps that strange sense of something wanting either in miss fairley or in myself which had perplexed me when i was first introduced to her haunted me still anyhow it was a relief to my spirits when the dinner hour called me out of my solitude and took me back to the society of the ladies of the house i was struck on entering the drawing-room by the curious contrast rather in material than in colour of the dresses which they now wore while mrs vesey and miss halcombe were richly clad each in the manner most becoming to her age the first in silver grey and the second in that delicate primrose yellow colour which matches so well with a dark complexion and black hair miss fairley was unpretendingly 
and almost poorly dressed in plain white muslin it was spotlessly pure it was beautifully put on but still it was the sort of dress which the wife or daughter of a poor man might have worn and it made her so far as externals went look less affluent in circumstances than her own governess at a later period when i learned to know more of miss fairley's character i discovered that this curious contrast on the wrong side was due to her natural delicacy of feeling and natural intensity of aversion to the slightest personal display of her own wealth neither mrs vesey nor miss halcombe could ever induce her to let the advantage in dress desert the two ladies who were poor to lean to the side of the one lady who was rich when the dinner was over we returned together to the drawing-room although mr fairley emulating the magnificent condescension of the monarch who had picked up titian's brush for him had instructed his butler to consult my wishes in relation to the wine that i might prefer after dinner i was resolute enough to resist the temptation of sitting in solitary grandeur among bottles of my own choosing and sensible enough to ask the lady's permission to leave the table with them habitually on the civilized foreign plan during the period of my residence at limeridge house the drawing-room to which we had now withdrawn for the rest of the evening was on the ground floor and was of the same shape and size as the breakfast-room large glass doors at the lower end opened on to a terrace beautifully ornamented along its whole length with a profusion of flowers the soft hazy twilight was just shading leaf and blossom alike into harmony with its own sober hues as we entered the room and the sweet evening scent of the flowers met us with its fragrant welcome through the open glass doors good mrs vesey always the first of the party to sit down took possession of an armchair in a corner and dozed off comfortably to sleep at my request miss fairly placed herself at the piano as i followed her to a seat near the instrument i saw miss harkham retire into a recess of one of the side windows to proceed with the search through her mother's letters by the last quiet rays of the evening light how vividly that peaceful home picture of the drawing-room comes back to me while i write from the place where i sat i could see miss halcombe's graceful figure half of it in soft light half in mysterious shadow bending intently over the letters in her lap while nearer to me the fair profile of the player at the piano was just delicately defined against the faintly deepening background of the inner wall of the room outside on the terrace the clustering flowers and long grasses and creepers waved so gently in the light evening air that the sound of their rustling never reached us the sky was without a cloud and the dawning mystery of moonlight 
began to tremble already in the region of the eastern heaven. The sense of peace and seclusion soothed all thought and feeling into a rapt unearthly repose, and the balmy quiet that deepened ever with the deepening light seemed to hover over us with a gentler influence still, when there stole upon it from the piano the heavenly tenderness of the music of Mozart. It was an evening of sights and sounds never to forget. We all sat silent in the places we had chosen, Mrs. Vesey still sleeping, Miss Fairley still playing, Miss Harkham still reading, till the light failed us. By this time the moon had stolen round to the terrace, and soft mysterious rays of light were slanting already across the lower end of the room. The change from the twilight obscurity was so beautiful that we banished the lamps by common consent when the servant brought them in, and kept the large room unlighted except by the glimmer of the two candles at the piano. For half an hour more the music still went on. After that the beauty of the moonlight view on the terrace tempted Miss Fairley out to look at it, and I followed her. When the candles at the piano had been lighted, Miss Halcombe had changed her place so as to continue her examination of the letters by their assistance. We left her on a low chair at one side of the instrument, so absorbed over her reading that she did not seem to notice when we moved. We had been out on the terrace together, just in front of the glass doors, hardly so long as five minutes, I should think, and Miss Fairley was, by my advice, just tying her white handkerchief over her head as a precaution against the night air, when I heard Miss Halcombe's voice, low, eager, and altered from its natural lively tone, pronounce my name. "'Mr. Hartwright,' she said, "'will you come here for a minute? I want to speak to you.' I entered the room again immediately. The piano stood about halfway down along the inner wall. On the side of the instrument, farthest from the terrace, Miss Halcombe was sitting, with the letters scattered on her lap and with one in her hand selected from them, and held close to the candle. On the side nearest to the terrace there stood a low ottoman on which I took my place. In this position I was not far from the glass doors, and I could see Miss Fairley plainly, as she passed and repassed the opening on to the terrace, walking slowly from end to end of it, in the full radiance of the moon. "'I want you to listen.' while I read the concluding passages in this letter, said Miss Halcombe. Tell me if you think they throw any light upon your strange adventure on the road to London. The letter is addressed by my mother to her second husband, Mr. Fairley, and the date refers to a period of between eleven and twelve years since. At that time, Mr. and Mrs. Fairley and my half-sister Laura have been living for years in this house, and I was away from them, completing my education at a school in Paris. She looked and spoke earnestly, and, as I thought, a little uneasily as well. At the moment when she raised the letter to the candle before beginning to read it, Miss Fairley passed us on the terrace, looked in for a moment, 
and seeing that we were engaged, slowly walked on. Miss Harkham began to read, as follows. You will be tired, my dear Philip, of hearing perpetually about my schools and my scholars. Lay the blame, pray, on the dull uniformity of life at Limeridge, and not on me. Besides, this time I have something really interesting to tell you about a new scholar. You know old Mrs. Kemp at the village shop? Well, after years of ailing, the doctor has at last given her up, and she is dying slowly day by day. Her only living relation, a sister, arrived last week to take care of her. This sister comes all the way from Hampshire. Her name is Mrs. Catherick. Four days ago, Mrs. Catherick came here to see me, and brought her only child with her, a sweet little girl, about a year older than our darling Laura. As the last sentence fell from the reader's lips, Miss Burley passed us on the terrace once more. She was softly singing to herself one of the melodies which she had been playing earlier in the evening. Miss Harkham waited till she had passed out of sight again, and then went on with the letter. Mrs. Catherick is a decent, well-behaved, respectable woman, middle-aged, and with the remains of having been moderately, only moderately, nice-looking. There is something in her manner and in her appearance, however, which I can't make out. She is reserved about herself, to the point of downright secrecy, and there is a look in her face, I can't describe it, which suggests to me that she has something on her mind. She is altogether what you would call a walking mystery. Her errand at Limeridge House, however, was simple enough. When she left Hampshire to nurse her sister, Mrs. Kemp, through her last illness, she had been obliged to bring her daughter with her, through having no one at home to take care of the little girl. Mrs. Kemp may die in a week's time, or may linger on for months, and Mrs. Catherick's object was to ask me to let her daughter Anne have the benefit of attending my school, subject to the condition of her being removed from it to go home again with her mother after Mrs. Kemp's death. I consented at once, and when Laura and I went out for our walk, we took the little girl, who was just eleven years old, to the school that very day. Once more, Miss Fairley's figure, bright and soft in its snowy muslin dress, her face prettily framed by the white folds of the handkerchief which she had tied under her chin, passed by us in the moonlight. Once more, Miss Halcombe waited till she was out of sight, and then went on. I have taken a violent fancy, Philip, to my new scholar, for a reason which I mean to keep till the last, for the sake of surprising you. Her mother, having told me as little about the child as she told me of herself, I was left to discover, which I did on the first day, when we tried her at lessons, that the poor little thing's intellect is not developed as it ought to be at her age. Seeing this, I had her up to the house the next day, and privately arranged with the doctor to come and watch her and question her, and tell me what he thought. His opinion is that she will grow out of it, but he says her careful bringing up at school is a matter of great importance just now, because her unusual slowness in acquiring ideas implies an unusual tenacity in keeping them when they are once received into her mind. 
Now, my love, you must not imagine in your offhand way that I have been attaching myself to an idiot. This poor little Anne Catherick is a sweet, affectionate, grateful girl, and says the quaintest, prettiest things, as you shall judge by an instance, in the most oddly sudden, surprised, half-frightened way. Although she is dressed very neatly, her clothes show a sad want of taste in colour and pattern. So I arranged yesterday that some of our darling Laura's old white frocks and white hats should be altered for Anne Catherick, explaining to her that little girls of her complexion look neater and better all in white than in anything else. She hesitated and seemed puzzled for a minute, then flushed up and appeared to understand. Her little hand clasped mine suddenly. She kissed it, Philip, and said, oh, so earnestly, I will always wear white as long as I live. It will help me to remember you, ma'am, and to think that I am pleasing you still when I go away and see you no more. This is only one specimen of the quaint thing she says so prettily. A poor little soul. She shall have a stock of white frocks, made with good deep tucks, to let out for her as she grows. Miss Halcombe paused, and looked at me across the piano. Did the forlorn woman whom you met in the high road seem young, she asked, young enough to be two or three and twenty? Yes, Miss Halcombe, as young as that. And she was strangely dressed from head to foot, all in white. All in white. While the answer was passing my lips, Miss Fairley glided into view on the terrace for the third time. Instead of proceeding on her walk, she stopped, with her back turned towards us, and leaning on the balustrade of the terrace, looked down into the garden beyond. My eyes fixed upon the white gleam of her muslin gown and headdress in the moonlight, and a sensation for which I can find no name, a sensation that quickened my pulse and raised a fluttering at my heart, began to steal over me. All in white, Miss Harkham repeated. The most important sentences in the letter, Mr. Hartwright, are those at the end which I will read to you immediately. But I can't help dwelling a little upon the coincidence of the white costume of the woman you met, and the white frocks, which produced that strange answer from my mother's little scholar. The doctor may have been wrong when he discovered the child's defects of intellect, and predicted that she would grow out of them. She may never have grown out of them, and the old grateful fancy about dressing in white, which was a serious feeling to the girl, may be a serious feeling to the woman still. I said a few words in answer, I hardly know what, all my attention was concentrated on the white gleam of Miss Fairley's muslin dress. Listen to the last sentences of the letter, said Miss Halcombe, I think they will surprise you. As she raised the letter to the light of the candle, Miss Fairley turned from the balustrade, looked doubtfully up and down the terrace, advanced a step towards the glass doors, and then stopped facing us. Meanwhile, Miss Halcombe read me the last sentences to which she had referred. And now, my love, seeing that I am at the end of my paper, now for the real reason, the surprising reason, for my fondness for little Anne Catherick, my dear Philip, although she is not half so pretty, 
she is nevertheless by one of those extraordinary caprices of accidental resemblance which one sometimes sees the living likeness in her hair her complexion the colour of her eyes and the shape of her face i started up from the ottoman before miss halcombe could pronounce the next words a thrill of the same feeling which ran through me when the touch was laid upon my shoulder on the lonely high-road chilled me again there stood miss fairley a white figure alone in the moonlight in her attitude in the turn of her head in her complexion in the shape of her face the living image at that distance and under those circumstances of the woman in white the doubt which had troubled my mind for hours and hours past flashed into conviction in an instant that something wanting was my own recognition of the ominous likeness between the fugitive from the asylum and my pupil at limeridge house you see it said miss halcombe she dropped the useless letter and her eyes flashed as they met mine you see it now as my mother saw it eleven years since i see it more unwillingly than i can say to associate that forlorn friendless lost woman even by an accidental likeness only with miss fairley seems like casting a shadow on the future of the bright creature who stands looking at us now let me lose the impression again as soon as possible call her in out of the dreary moonlight pray call her in mr hartwright you surprise me whatever women may be i thought that men in the nineteenth century were above superstition pray call her in hush hush she is coming of her own accord say nothing in her presence let this discovery of the likeness be kept a secret between you and me come in laura come in and wake mrs Basie with the piano mr hartwright is petitioning for some more music and he wants it this time of the lightest and liveliest kind nine so ended my eventful first day at limeridge house miss halcombe and i kept our secret after the discovery of the likeness no fresh light seemed destined to break over the mystery of the woman in white at the first safe opportunity miss halcombe cautiously led her half-sister to speak of their mother of old times and of anne catherick Miss Fairley's recollections of the little scholar at Limeridge were, however, only of the most vague and general kind. She remembered the likeness between herself and her mother's favourite pupil as something which had been supposed to exist in past times, but she did not refer to the gift of the white dresses, or to the singular form of words in which the child had artlessly expressed her gratitude for them she remembered that anne had remained at limeridge for a few months only and had then left it to go back to her home in hampshire but she could not say whether the daughter and mother had ever returned or had ever been heard of afterwards no further search on miss halcombe's part through the few letters of mrs fairley's writing which she had left unread assisted in clearing up the uncertainties still left to perplex us we had identified the unhappy woman whom I had met in the night-time with Anne Catherick. We had made some advance, at least, towards connecting the probably defective condition of the poor creature's intellect with the peculiarity of her being dressed all in white, and with the continuance, in her maturer years, 
of her childish gratitude towards Mrs. Fairley, and there, so far as we knew at that time, our discoveries had ended. The days passed on, the weeks passed on, and the track of the golden autumn wound its bright way visibly through the green summer of the trees. Peaceful, fast-flowing happy time, my story glides by you now as swiftly as you once glided by me. Of all the treasures of enjoyment that you poured so freely into my heart, how much is left me that has purpose and value enough to be written on this page. Nothing but the saddest of all confessions that a man can make, the confession of his own folly. The secret which that confession discloses should be told with little effort, for it has indirectly escaped me already. The poor, weak words, which have failed to describe Miss Fairley, have succeeded in betraying the sensation she awakened in me. It is so with us all. Our words are giants when they do us an injury, and dwarfs when they do us a service. I loved her. Ah, how well I know all the sadness and all the mockery that is contained in those three words. I can sigh over my mournful confession with the tenderest woman who reads it and pities me. I can laugh at it as bitterly as the hardest man who tosses it from him in contempt. I loved her. Feel for me or despise me. I confess it with the same immovable resolution to own the truth. Was there no excuse for me? There was some excuse to be found, surely, in the conditions under which my term of hired service was passed at Limeridge House. My morning hours succeeded each other calmly in the quiet and seclusion of my own room. I had just work enough to do in mounting my employer's drawings to keep my hands and eyes pleasurably employed, while my mind was left free to enjoy the dangerous luxury of its own unbridled thoughts, a perilous solitude, for it lasted long enough to enervate, not long enough to fortify me, a perilous solitude, for it was followed by afternoons and evenings spent day after day, and week after week, alone in the society of two women, one of whom possessed all the accomplishments of grace, wit, and high breeding, the other all the charms of beauty, gentleness, and simple truth that can purify and subdue the heart of man. Not a day passed in that dangerous intimacy of teacher and pupil, in which my hand was not close to Miss Fairley's, my cheek, as we bent together over her sketchbook, almost touching hers. The more attentively she watched every movement of my brush, the more closely I was breathing the perfume of her hair and the warm fragrance of her breath. It was part of my service to live in the very light of her eyes, at one time to be bending over her so close to her bosom as to tremble at the thought of touching it at another, to feel her bending over me, bending so close to see what I was about, that her voice sank low when she spoke to me and her ribbons brushed my cheek in the wind before she could draw them back. The evenings which followed the sketching excursions of the afternoon varied rather than checked these innocent, these inevitable familiarities. 
my natural fondness for the music which she played with such tender feeling such delicate womanly taste and her natural enjoyment of giving me back by the practice of her art the pleasure which i had offered to her by the practice of mine only wove another tie which drew us closer and closer to one another the accidents of conversation the simple habits which regulated even such a little thing as the position of our places at table the play of miss halcombe's ever-ready raillery always directed against my anxiety as teacher while it sparkled over her enthusiasm as pupil the harmless expression of poor mrs vase's drowsy approval which connected miss fairley and me as two model young people who never disturbed her every one of these trifles and many more combined to fold us together in the same domestic atmosphere and to lead us both insensibly to the same hopeless end i should have remembered my position and have put myself secretly on my guard i did so but not till it was too late all the discretion all the experience which had availed me with other women and secured me against other temptations failed me with her it had been my profession for years past to be in this close contact with young girls of all ages and of all orders of beauty i had accepted the position as part of my calling in life i had trained myself to leave all the sympathies natural to my age in my employer's outer hall as coolly as i left my umbrella there before i went upstairs i had long since learned to understand composedly and as a matter of course that my situation in life was considered a guarantee against any of my female pupils feeling more than the most ordinary interest in me and that i was admitted among beautiful and captivating women much as a harmless domestic animal is admitted among them this guardian experience i had gained early this guardian experience had sternly and strictly guided me straight along my own poor narrow path without once letting me stray aside to the right hand or to the left and now i and my trusty talisman were parted for the first time yes my hardly earned self-control was as completely lost to me as if i had never possessed it lost to me as it is lost every day to other men in other critical situations where women are concerned i know now that i should have questioned myself from the first i should have asked why any room in the house was better than home to me when she entered it and barren as a desert when she went out again why i always noticed and remembered the little changes in her dress that i had noticed and remembered in no other woman's before why i saw her heard her and touched her when we shook hands at night and morning as i had never seen heard and touched any other woman in my life i should have looked into my own heart and found this new growth springing up there and plucked it out while it was young why was this easiest simplest work of self-culture always too much for me the explanation has been written already 
in the three words that were many enough and plain enough for my confession. I loved her. The days passed, the weeks passed. It was approaching the third month of my stay in Cumberland. The delicious monotony of life in our calm seclusion flowed on with me like a smooth stream with a swimmer who glides down the current. All memory of the past, all thought of the future, all sense of the falseness and hopelessness of my own position lay hushed within me into deceitful rest, lulled by the siren song that my own heart sung to me, with eyes shut to all sight and ears closed to all sound of danger, I drifted nearer and nearer to the fatal rocks. The warning that aroused me at last, and startled me into sudden self-accusing consciousness of my own weakness, was the plainest, the truest, the kindest of all warnings, for it came silently from her. We had parted one night as usual. No word had fallen from my lips at that time, or at any time before it, that could betray me, or startle her into sudden knowledge of the truth. But when we met again in the morning, a change had come over her, a change that told me all. I shrank then, I shrank still, from invading the innermost sanctuary of her heart, and laying it open to others, as I have laid open my own. Let it be enough to say, that the time when she first surprised my secret was, I firmly believe, the time when she first surprised her own, and the time also when she changed towards me in the interval of one night. Her nature, too truthful to deceive others, was too noble to deceive itself. When the doubt that I had hushed asleep first laid its weary weight on her heart, the true face owned all, and said in its own frank, simple language, I am sorry for him. I am sorry for myself. It said this, and more which I could not then interpret. I understood but too well the change in her manner, to greater kindness, and quicker readiness in interpreting all my wishes before others, to constraint, and sadness, and nervous anxiety, to absorb herself in the first occupation she could seize on, whenever we happened to be left together alone. I understood why the sweet, sensitive lips smiled so rarely and so restrainedly now, and why the clear blue eyes looked at me, sometimes with the pity of an angel, sometimes with the innocent perplexity of a child. But the change meant more than this. There was a coldness in her hand, there was an unnatural immobility in her face, there was in all her movements the mute expression of constant fear and clinging self-reproach. The sensations that I could trace to herself and to me, the unacknowledged sensations that we were feeling in common, were not these. There were certain elements of the change in her that were still secretly drawing us together, and others that were as secretly beginning to drive us apart. In my doubt and perplexity, in my vague suspicion of something hidden which I was left to find by my own unaided efforts, I examined Miss Harcombe's looks and manner for enlightenment. Living in such intimacy as ours, 
no serious alteration could take place in any one of us which did not sympathetically affect the others. The change in Miss Fairley was reflected in her half-sister. Although not a word escaped Miss Halcombe, which hinted at an altered state of feeling towards myself, her penetrating eyes had contracted a new habit of always watching me. Sometimes the look was like suppressed anger, sometimes like suppressed dread, sometimes like neither, like nothing, in short, which I could understand. A week elapsed, leaving us all three still in this position of secret constraint towards one another. My situation, aggravated by the sense of my own miserable weakness and forgetfulness of myself, now too late awakened in me, was becoming intolerable. I felt that I must cast off the oppression under which I was living at once and for ever, yet how to act for the best or what to say first was more than I could tell. From this position of helplessness and humiliation I was rescued by Miss Halcombe. Her lips told me the bitter, the necessary, the unexpected truth. Her hearty kindness sustained me under the shock of hearing it. Her sense and courage turned to its right use, an event which threatened the worst that could happen to me and to others in Limeridge House. End of chapter 3《Four of the Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Ten. It was on a Thursday in the week, and nearly at the end of the third month of my sojourn in Cumberland. In the morning, when I went down into the breakfast-room at the usual hour, Miss Halcombe, for the first time since I had known her, was absent from her customary place at the table. Miss Fairley was out on the lawn. She bowed to me, but did not come in. Not a word had dropped from my lips or from hers that could unsettle either of us, and yet the same unacknowledged sense of embarrassment made us shrink alike from meeting one another alone. She waited on the lawn, and I waited in the breakfast-room, till Mrs. Vesey or Miss Halcombe came in. How quickly I should have joined her! How readily we should have shaken hands and glided into our customary talk only a fortnight ago! In a few minutes Miss Halcombe entered. She had a preoccupied look, and she made her apologies for being late rather absently. I have been detained, she said, by a consultation with Mr. Fairley on a domestic matter, which she wished to speak to me about. Miss Fairley came in from the garden, and the usual morning greeting passed between us. Her hand struck colder to mine than ever. She did not look at me, and she was very pale. Even Mrs. Vesey noticed it when she entered the room a moment after. "'I suppose it is the change in the wind,' said the old lady. "'The winter is coming, are oh, my love. 
the winter is coming soon in her heart and in mine it had come already our morning meal once so full of pleasant good-humoured discussion of the plans for the day was short and silent miss fairly seemed to feel the oppression of the long pauses in the conversation and looked appealingly to her sister to fill them up miss halcombe after once or twice hesitating and checking herself in a most uncharacteristic manner spoke at last i have seen your uncle this morning laura she said he thinks the purple room is the one that ought to be got ready and he confirms what i told you a monday is the day not tuesday while these words were being spoken miss fairly looked down at the table beneath her her fingers moved nervously among the crumbs that were scattered on the cloth the paleness on her cheeks spread to her lips and the lips themselves trembled visibly i was not the only person present who noticed this miss halcombe saw it too and at once set us the example of rising from table mrs vesey and miss fairy left the room together the kind sorrowful blue eyes looked at me for a moment with the prescient sadness of a coming and a long farewell i felt the answering pang in my own heart the pang that told me i must lose her soon and love her the more unchangeably for the loss i turned towards the garden when the door had closed on her miss halcombe was standing with her hat in her hand and her shawl over her arm by the large window that led out to the lawn and was looking at me attentively have you any leisure time to spare she asked before you begin to work in your own room certainly miss halcombe i have always time at your service i want to say a word to you in private mr hartwright get your hat and come out into the garden we are not likely to be disturbed there at this hour in the morning as we stepped out on to the lawn one of the undergardeners a mere lad passed us on his way to the house with a letter in his hand miss halcombe stopped him is that letter for me she asked nay miss it's just said to be for miss fairley answered the lad holding out the letter as he spoke miss halcombe took it from him and looked at the address a strange handwriting she said to herself who can laura's correspondent be where did you get this she continued addressing the gardener well miss said the lad i just got it from a woman what woman a woman well stricken in age oh an old woman any one you knew i cannot tack it on myself to say that she was other than a stranger to me which way did she go that gate said the undergardener turning with great deliberation towards the south and embracing the whole of that part of england with one comprehensive sweep of his arm curious said miss halcombe i suppose it must be a begging letter there she added handing the letter back to the lad take it to the house and give it to one of the servants and now mr hartwright if you have no objection let us walk this way she led me across the lawn along the same path by which i had followed her on the day after my arrival at limeridge at the little summer-house in which laura fairley and i had first seen each other 
she stopped and broke the silence which she had steadily maintained while we were walking together what i have to say to you i can say here with those words she entered the summer-house took one of the chairs at the little round table inside and signed to me to take the other i suspected what was coming when she spoke to me in the breakfast-room i felt certain of it now mr hartwright she said i am going to begin by making a frank avowal to you i am going to say without phrase-making which i detest or paying compliments which i heartily despise that i have come in the course of your residence with us to feel a strong friendly regard for you i was predisposed in your favour when you first told me of your conduct towards that unhappy woman whom you met under such remarkable circumstances your management of the affair might not have been prudent but it showed the self-control the delicacy and the compassion of a man who was naturally a gentleman it made me expect good things from you and you have not disappointed my expectations she paused but held up her hand at the same time as a sign that she awaited no answer from me before she proceeded when i entered the summer-house no thought was in me of the woman in white but now miss halcombe's own words had put the memory of my adventure back in my mind it remained there throughout the interview remained and not without a result as your friend she proceeded i am going to tell you at once in my own plain blunt downright language that i have discovered your secret without help or hint mine from anyone else mr hartright you have thoughtlessly allowed yourself to form an attachment a serious and devoted attachment i am afraid to my sister laura i don't put you to the pain of confessing it in so many words because i see and know that you are too honest to deny it i don't even blame you i pity you for opening your heart to a hopeless affection you have not attempted to take any underhand advantage you have not spoken to my sister in secret you are guilty of weakness and want of attention to your own best interests but of nothing worse if you had acted in any single respect less delicately and less modestly i should have told you to leave the house without an instant's notice or an instant's consultation of anybody as it is i blame the misfortune of your years and your position i don't blame you shake hands i have given you pain i am going to give you more but there is no hope for it shake hands with your friend marion halcombe first the sudden kindness the warm high-minded fearless sympathy which met me on such mercifully equal terms which appealed with such delicate and generous abruptness straight to my heart my honour and my courage overcame me in an instant i tried to look at her when she took my hand but my eyes were dim i tried to thank her but my voice failed me listen to me she said considerately avoiding all notice of my loss of self-control listen to me and let us get it over at once it is a real true relief to me that i am not obliged in what i have now to say 
to enter into the question, the hard and cruel question, as I think it, of social inequalities, circumstances which will try you to the quick, spare me the ungracious necessity of paining a man who has lived in friendly intimacy under the same roof with myself by any humiliating reference to matters of rank and station. You must leave Limeridge House, Mr. Hartwright, before more harm is done. It is my duty to say that to you, and it will be equally my duty to say it, under precisely the same serious necessity, if you were the representative of the oldest and wealthiest family in England. You must leave us, not because you are a teacher of drawing. She waited a moment, turned her face full on me, and reaching across the table, laid her hand firmly on my arm. Not because you are a teacher of drawing, she repeated, but because Laura Fairley is engaged to be married. The last word went like a bullet to my heart. My arm lost all sensation of the hand that grasped it. I never moved and never spoke. The sharp autumn breeze that scattered the dead leaves at our feet came as cold to me on a sudden, as if my own mad hopes were dead leaves too, whirled away by the wind like the rest. Hope! Betrothed or not betrothed, she was equally far from me. Would other men have remembered that in my place? Not if they had loved her as I did. The pang passed, and nothing but the dull, numbing pain of it remained. I felt Miss Halcombe's hand again, tightening its hold on my arm. I raised my head and looked at her. Her large black eyes were rooted on me, watching the white change on my face which I felt and which she saw. Crush it, she said, here, where you first saw her crush it. Don't shrink under it like a woman, tear it out, trample it underfoot like a man. The suppressed vehemence with which she spoke, the strength which her will concentrated in the look she fixed on me, and in the hold on my arm that she had not yet relinquished, communicated to mine, steadied me. We both waited for a minute in silence. At the end of that time, I had justified her generous faith in my manhood. I had, outwardly at least, recovered my self-control. Are you yourself again? Enough myself, Miss Halcombe, to ask your pardon and hers. Enough myself to be guided by your advice, and to prove my gratitude in that way, if I can prove it in no other. You have proved it already, she answered, by those words. Mr. Hartwright, concealment is at an end between us. I cannot affect to hide from you what my sister has unconsciously shown to me. You must leave us for her sake, as well as for your own. Your presence here, your necessary intimacy with us, harmless as it has been, God knows, in all other respects, has unsteadied her and made her wretched. I, who love her better than my own life, I, who have learned to believe in that pure, noble, innocent nature, as I believe in my religion, know but too well the secret misery of self-reproach that she has been suffering 
since the first shadow of a feeling disloyal to her marriage engagement entered her heart in spite of her. I don't say it would be useless to attempt to say it after what has happened, that her engagement has ever had a strong hold on her affections. It is an engagement of honour, not of love. Her father sanctioned it on his deathbed two years since. She herself neither welcomed it nor shrank from it. She was content to make it. Till you came here, she was in the position of hundreds of other women who marry men without being greatly attracted to them, or greatly repelled by them, and who learn to love them, when they don't learn to hate, after marriage, instead of before. I hope more earnestly than words can say, and you should have the self-sacrificing courage to hope too, that the new thoughts and feelings which have disturbed the old calmness and the old content have not taken root too deeply to be ever removed. Your absence, if I had less belief in your honour and your courage and your sense, I should not trust to them as I am trusting now. Your absence will help my efforts, and time will help us all three. It is something to know that my first confidence in you was not all misplaced. It is something to know that you will not be less honest, less manly, less considerate towards the pupil whose relation to yourself you have had the misfortune to forget, than towards the stranger and the outcast, whose appeal to you was not made in vain. Again the chance reference to the woman in white. Was there no possibility of speaking of Miss Fairley and of me, without raising the memory of Anne Catherick, and setting her between us like a fatality that it was hopeless to avoid? Tell me what apology I can make to Mr. Fairley, for breaking my engagement, I said. Tell me when to go after that apology is accepted. I promise implicit obedience to you and to your advice. Time is every way of importance, she answered. You heard me refer this morning to Monday next, and to the necessity of setting the purple room in order. The visitor whom we expect on Monday. I could not wait for her to be more explicit. Knowing what I knew now, the memory of Miss Fairley's look and manner at the breakfast-table told me that the expected visitor at Limeridge House was her future husband. I tried to force it back, but something rose within me at that moment stronger than my own will, and I interrupted Miss Harcombe. "'Let me go to-day,' I said bitterly. "'The sooner the better.' "'No, not to-day,' she replied. "'The only reason you can assign to Mr. Fairley for your departure before the end of your engagement, must be that an unforeseen necessity compels you to ask his permission to return at once to London. You must wait till to-morrow to tell him that, at the time when the post comes in, because he will then understand the sudden change in your plans by associating it with the arrival of a letter from London. It is miserable and sickening to descend to deceit, even of the most harmless kind, but I know Mr. Fairley, and if you once excite his suspicions that you are trifling with him, he will refuse to release you. Speak to him on Friday morning. Occupy yourself afterwards, for the sake of your own interests with your employer, in leaving your unfinished work in as little confusion as possible, and quit this place on Saturday. 
it will be time enough then mr hartright for you and for all of us before i could assure her that she might depend on my acting in the strictest accordance with her wishes we were both startled by advancing footsteps in the shrubbery someone was coming from the house to seek for us i felt the blood rush into my cheeks and then leave them again could the third person who was fast approaching us at such a time and under such circumstances be miss fairly it was a relief so sadly so hopelessly was my position towards her changed already it was absolutely a relief to me when the person who had disturbed us appeared at the entrance of the summer-house and proved to be only miss fairley's maid could i speak to you for a moment miss said the girl in rather a flurried unsettled manner miss halcombe descended the steps into the shrubbery and walked aside a few paces with the maid left by myself my mind reverted with a sense of forlorn wretchedness which it is not in any words that i can find to describe to my approaching return to the solitude and the despair of my lonely london home thoughts of my kind old mother and of my sister who had rejoiced with her so innocently over my prospects in cumberland thoughts whose long banishment from my heart it was now my shame and my reproach to realize for the first time came back to me with the loving mournfulness of old neglected friends my mother and my sister what would they feel when i returned to them from my broken engagement with the confession of my miserable secret they who had parted from me so hopefully on that last happy night in the hampstead cottage and catherick again even the memory of the farewell evening with my mother and my sister could not return to me now unconnected with that other memory of the moonlight walk back to london what did it mean were that woman and i to meet once more it was possible at the least did she know that i lived in london yes i had told her so either before or after that strange question of hers when she had asked me so distressfully if i knew many men of the rank of baronet either before or after my mind was not calm enough then to remember which a few minutes elapsed before miss halcombe dismissed the maid and came back to me she too looked florid and unsettled now we have arranged all that is necessary mr hartright she said we have understood each other as friends should and we may go back at once to the house to tell you the truth i am uneasy about laura she has sent to say she wants to see me directly and the maid reports that her mistress is apparently very much agitated by a letter that she has received this morning the same letter no doubt which i sent on to the house before we came here we retraced our steps together hastily along the shrubbery path although miss halcombe had ended all that she thought it necessary to say on her side i had not ended all that i wanted to say on mine from the moment when i had discovered that the expected visitor at limeridge was miss fairley's future husband i had felt a bitter curiosity a burning envious eagerness to know who he was it was possible that a future opportunity of putting the question might not easily offer so i risked asking it on our way back to the house now that you are kind enough to tell me we have understood each other miss halcombe i said 
now that you are sure of my gratitude for your forbearance and my obedience to your wishes may i venture to ask who i hesitated i had forced myself to think of him but it was harder still to speak of him as a promised husband who the gentleman engaged to miss fairly is her mind was evidently occupied with the message she had received from her sister she answered in a hasty absent way a gentleman of large property in hampshire hampshire and catherick's native place again and yet again the woman in white there was a fatality in it and his name i said as quietly and indifferently as i could sir percival glide sir sir percival and catherick's question that suspicious question about the men of the rank of baronet whom i might happen to know had hardly been dismissed from my mind by miss halcombe's return to me in the summer-house before it was recalled again by her own answer i stopped suddenly and looked at her sir percival glide she repeated imagining that i had not heard her former reply knight or baronet i asked with an agitation that i could hide no longer she paused for a moment and then answered rather coldly baronet of course eleven not a word more was said on either side as we walked back to the house miss halcombe hastened immediately to her sister's room and i withdrew to my studio to set in order all of mr fairley's drawings that i had not yet mounted and restored before i resigned them to the care of other hands thoughts that i had hitherto restrained thoughts that made my position harder than ever to endure crowded on me now that i was alone she was engaged to be married and her future husband was sir percival glide a man of the rank of baronet and the owner of property in hampshire there were hundreds of baronets in england and dozens of landowners in hampshire judging by the ordinary rules of evidence i had not the shadow of a reason thus far for connecting sir percival glide with the suspicious words of inquiry that had been spoken to me by the woman in white and yet i did connect him with them was it because he had now become associated in my mind with miss fairley miss fairley being in her turn associated with anne catherick since the night when i had discovered the ominous likeness between them had the events of the morning so unnerved me already that i was at the mercy of any delusion which common chances and common coincidences might suggest to my imagination impossible to say i could only feel that what had passed between miss halcombe and myself on our way from the summer-house had affected me very strangely the foreboding of some undiscoverable danger lying hid from us all in the darkness of the future was strong on me the doubt whether i was not linked already to a chain of events which even my approaching departure from cumberland would be powerless to snap asunder the doubt whether we any of us saw the end as the end would really be gathered more and more darkly over my mind poignant as it was the sense of suffering caused by the miserable end of my brief presumptuous love seemed to be blunted and deadened by the still stronger sense of something obscurely impending something invisibly threatening that time was holding over our heads i had been engaged with the drawings little more than half an hour 
when there was a knock at the door. It opened on my answering, and, to my surprise, Miss Holcombe entered the room. Her manner was angry and agitated. She caught up a chair for herself, before I could give her one, and sat down in it close at my side. Mr. Hartwright, she said, I had hoped that all painful subjects of conversation were exhausted between us, for to-day at least, but it is not to be so. There is some underhand villainy at work to frighten my sister about her approaching marriage. You saw me send the gardener on to the house, with a letter addressed in a strange handwriting, to Miss Fairley? Certainly. The letter is an anonymous letter. A vile attempt to injure Sir Percival Glyde in my sister's estimation. It has so agitated and alarmed her that I have had the greatest possible difficulty in composing her spirits sufficiently to allow me to leave her room and come here. I know this is a family matter, on which I ought not to consult you, and in which you can feel no concern or interest. I beg your pardon, Miss Halcombe. I feel the strongest possible concern and interest in anything that affects Miss Fairley's happiness, or yours. I am glad to hear you say so. You are the only person in the house or out of it who can advise me. Mr. Fairley, in his state of health, and with his horror of difficulties and mysteries of all kinds, is not to be thought of. The clergyman is a good, weak man, who knows nothing out of the routine of his duties, and our neighbours are just the sort of comfortable, jog-trot acquaintances whom one cannot disturb in times of trouble and danger. What I want to know is this. Ought I at once to take such steps as I can to discover the writer of the letter, or ought I to wait and apply to Mr. Fairley's legal adviser to-morrow? It is a question, perhaps a very important one, of gaining or losing a day. Tell me what you think, Mr. Hartwright. If necessity had not already obliged me to take you into my confidence, under very delicate circumstances, even my helpless situation would perhaps be no excuse for me. But as things are, I cannot surely be wrong, after all that has passed between us. She gave me the letter. It began abruptly, without any preliminary form of address, as follows. Do you believe in dreams? I hope for your own sake that you do. See what scripture says about dreams and their fulfilment. Genesis XL8 XL125 Daniel IV 18-25 And take the warning I send you before it is too late. Last night I dreamed about you, Miss Fairley. I dreamed that I was standing inside the communion rails of a church. I on one side of the altar-table, and the clergyman, with his surplus and his prayer-book on the other. After a time there walked towards us down the aisle of the church a man and a woman, coming to be married. You were the woman. You looked so pretty and innocent in your beautiful white silk dress, and your long white lace veil, that my heart felt for you, and the tears came into my eyes. They were tears of pity, young lady, that heaven blesses, and instead of falling from my eyes like the every-day tears that we all of us shed, they turned into two rays of light, which slanted nearer and nearer to the man standing at the altar with you, till they touched his breast. The two rays 
sprang in arches like two rainbows between me and him. I looked along them, and I saw down into his inmost heart. The outside of the man you are marrying was fair enough to see. He was neither tall nor short. He was a little below the middle size, a light, active, high-spirited man, about five-and-forty years old to look at. He had a pale face, and was bald over the forehead, but had dark hair on the rest of his head. His beard was shaven on his chin, but was left to grow of a fine, rich brown on his cheeks and his upper lip. His eyes were brown, too, and very bright. His nose straight and handsome, and delicate enough to have done for a woman's. His hands the same. He was troubled from time to time with a dry, hacking cough. And when he put up his white right hand to his mouth, he showed the red scar of an old wound across the back of it. Have I dreamt of the right man? You know best, Miss Burley, and you can say, if I was deceived or not, read next what I saw beneath the outside. I entreat you, read and profit. I looked along the two rays of light, and I saw down into his inmost heart. It was black as night, and on it were written in the red flaming letters, which are the handwriting of the fallen angel. Without pity and without remorse, he has strewn with misery the paths of others, and he will live to strew with misery the path of this woman by his side. I read that, and then the rays of light shifted and pointed over his shoulder, and there behind him stood a fiend laughing. And the rays of light shifted once more, and pointed over your shoulder, and there behind you stood an angel weeping. And the rays of light shifted for the third time, and pointed straight between you and that man. They widened and widened thrusting you both asunder one from the other, and the clergyman looked for the marriage service in vain. It was gone out of the book, and he shut up the leaves, and put it from him in despair, and I woke with my eyes full of tears and my heart beating, for I believe in dreams. Believe too, Miss Burley, I beg of you for your own sake, believe as I do. Joseph and Daniel and others in Scripture believed in dreams, inquire into the past life of that man with a scar on his hand before you say the words that make you his miserable wife i don't give you this warning on my account but on yours i have an interest in your well-being that will live as long as i draw breath your mother's daughter has a tender place in my heart for your mother was my first my best my only friend there the extraordinary letter ended without signature of any sort. The handwriting afforded no prospect of a clue. It was traced on ruled lines in the cramped conventional copybook character technically termed small hand. It was feeble and faint and defaced by blots, but had otherwise nothing to distinguish it. That is not an illiterate letter said Miss Halcombe, and at the same time it is surely too incoherent to be the letter of an educated person in the higher ranks of life. 
the reference to the bridal dress and veil, and other little expressions, seem to point to it as the production of some woman. What do you think, Mr. Hartwright? I think so, too. It seems to me to be not only the letter of a woman, but of a woman whose mind must be deranged, suggested Miss Holcombe. It struck me in that light, too. I did not answer. While I was speaking, my eyes rested on the last sentence of the letter. Your mother's daughter has a tender place in my heart, for your mother was my first, my best, my only friend. Those words, and the doubt which had just escaped me, as to the sanity of the writer of the letter, acting together on my mind, suggested an idea which I was literally afraid to express openly, or even to encourage secretly. I began to doubt whether my own faculties were not in danger of losing their balance. It seemed almost like a monomania to be tracing back everything strange that happened, everything unexpected that was said, always to the same hidden source and the same sinister influence. I resolved this time, in defence of my own courage and my own sense, to come to no decision that plain fact did not warrant, and to turn my back resolutely on everything that tempted me in the shape of surmise. "'If we have any chance of tracing the person who has written this,' I said, returning the letter to Miss Harcombe, there can be no harm in seizing our opportunity the moment it offers. I think we ought to speak to the gardener again about the elderly woman who gave him the letter, and then to continue our inquiries in the village. But first let me ask a question. You mentioned just now the alternative of consulting Mr. Fairley's legal adviser tomorrow. Is there no possibility of communicating with him earlier, or why not today? I can only explain, replied Miss Harcombe, by entering into certain particulars connected with my sister's marriage engagement, which I did not think it necessary or desirable to mention to you this morning. One of Sir Percival Glyde's objects in coming here on Monday is to fix the period of his marriage, which has hitherto been left quite unsettled. He is anxious that the event should take place before the end of the year. "'Does Miss Fairley know of that wish?' I asked eagerly. "'She has no suspicion of it, and after what has happened I shall not take the responsibility upon myself of enlightening her. Sir Percival has only mentioned his views to Mr. Fairley, who has told me himself that he is ready and anxious as Laura's guardian to forward them. He has written to London to the family solicitor, Mr. Gilmore. Mr. Gilmore happens to be away in Glasgow on business, and he has replied by proposing to stop at Limeridge House on his way back to town. He will arrive tomorrow, and will stay with us a few days, so as to allow Sir Percival time to plead his own cause. If he succeeds, Mr. Gilmore will then return to London, taking with him his instructions for my sister's marriage settlement. You understand now, Mr. Hartwright, why I speak of waiting to take legal advice until tomorrow? Mr. Gilmore is the old and tried friend of two generations of Fairleys, and we can trust him, as we could trust no one else. The marriage settlement, the mere hearing of those two words, 
stung me with a jealous despair that was poison to my higher and better instincts. I began to think, it is hard to confess this, but I must suppress nothing from beginning to end of the terrible story that I now stand committed to reveal. I began to think with a hateful eagerness of hope of the vague charges against Sir Percival Glyde which the anonymous letter contained. What if those wild accusations rested on a foundation of truth? What if their truth could be proved before the fatal words of consent were spoken and the marriage settlement was drawn? I have tried to think since that the feeling which then animated me began and ended in pure devotion to Miss Fairley's interests, but I have never succeeded in deceiving myself into believing it, and I must not now attempt to deceive others. The feeling began and ended in reckless, vindictive, hopeless hatred of the man who was to marry her. If we are to find out anything, I said, speaking under the new influence which was now directing me, we had better not let another minute slip by us unemployed. I can only suggest once more the propriety of questioning the gardener a second time, and of inquiring in the village immediately afterwards. I think I may be of help to you in both cases, said Miss Halcombe, rising. Let us go, Mr. Hartwright, at once, and do the best we can together. I had the door in my hand to open it for her, but I stopped on a sudden to ask an important question before we set forth. One of the paragraphs of the anonymous letter, I said, contains some sentences of minute personal description. Sir Percival Glyde's name is not mentioned, I know. But does that description at all resemble him? Accurately. Even in stating his age to be forty-five. Forty-five, and she was not yet twenty-one. Men of his age married wives of her age every day, and experience had shown those marriages to be often the happiest ones. I knew that, and yet even the mention of his age, when I contrasted it with hers, added to my blind hatred and distrust of him. Accurately, Miss Harcombe continued, even to the scar on his right hand, which is the scar of a wound that he received years since, when he was travelling in Italy. There can be no doubt that every peculiarity of his personal appearance is thoroughly well known to the writer of the letter. Even a cough that he is troubled with is mentioned, if I remember right. Yes, and mentioned correctly. He treats it lightly himself, though it sometimes makes his friends anxious about him. I suppose no whispers have ever been heard against his character. Mr. Hartwright, I hope you are not unjust enough to let that infamous letter influence you. I felt the blood rush into my cheeks, for I knew that it had influenced me. I hope not, I answered confusedly. Perhaps I had no right to ask the question. I am not sorry you asked it, she said, for it enables me to do justice to Sir Percival's reputation. Not a whisper, Mr. Hartwright, has ever reached me or my family against him. He has fought successfully two contested elections, and has come out of the ordeal unscathed. A man who can do that in England is a man whose character is established. I opened the door for her in silence and followed her out. She had not convinced me. If the recording angel had come down from heaven to confirm her, and had opened his book to my mortal eyes, 
the recording angel would not have convinced me. We found the gardener at work as usual. No amount of questioning could extract a single answer of any importance from the lad's impenetrable stupidity. The woman who had given him the letter was an elderly woman. She had not spoken a word to him, and she had gone away towards the south in a great hurry. That was all the gardener could tell us. The village lay southward of the house, so to the village we went next. Twelve. Our inquiries at Limeridge were patiently pursued in all directions, and among all sorts and conditions of people, but nothing came of them. Three of the villagers did certainly assure us that they had seen the woman, but as they were quite unable to describe her, and quite incapable of agreeing about the exact direction in which she was proceeding when they last saw her, these three bright exceptions to the general rule of total ignorance afforded no more real assistance to us than the mass of their unhelpful and unobservant neighbours. The course of our useless investigations brought us in time to the end of the village, at which the schools established by Mrs. Fairley were situated. As we passed the side of the building appropriated to the use of the boys, I suggested the propriety of making a last inquiry of the schoolmaster, whom we might presume to be, in virtue of his office, the most intelligent man in the place. I am afraid the schoolmaster must have been occupied with his scholars, said Miss Halcombe, just at the time when the woman passed through the village and returned again. However, we can but try. We entered the playground enclosure and walked by the schoolroom window to get round to the door, which was situated at the back of the building. I stopped for a moment at the window and looked in. The schoolmaster was sitting at his high desk with his back to me, apparently haranguing the pupils, who were all gathered together in front of him with one exception. The one exception was a sturdy, white-headed boy, standing apart from all the rest on a stool in a corner, a forlorn little crusoe, isolated in his own desert island of solitary penal disgrace. The door, when we got round to it, was ajar, and the schoolmaster's voice reached us plainly as we both stopped for a minute under the porch. "'Now, boys,' said the voice, "'mind what I tell you. If I hear another word spoken about ghosts in this school, it will be the worse for all of you. There are no such thing as ghosts, and therefore any boy who believes in ghosts believes in what can't possibly be. And a boy who belongs to Limeridge School and believes in what can't possibly be sets up his back against reason and discipline, and must be punished accordingly. You all see Jacob Bosselthwaite standing up on the stool there in disgrace. He has been punished, not because he said he saw a ghost last night, but because he is too impudent and too obstinate to listen to reason, and because he persists in saying he saw the ghost after I have told him that no such thing can possibly be. If nothing else will do, I mean to cane the ghost out of Jacob Bosselthwaite, and if the thing spreads among any of the rest of you, I mean to go a step farther and cane the ghost out of the whole school. We seem to have chosen an awkward moment for our visit, said Miss Halcombe pushing open the door at the end of the schoolmaster's address, and leading the way in. Our appearance produced a strong sensation among the boys. 
they appeared to think that we had arrived for the express purpose of seeing Jacob Postlethwaite caned. "'Go home, all of you, to dinner,' said the schoolmaster, "'except Jacob. Jacob must stop where he is, and the ghost may bring him his dinner, if the ghost pleases.' Jacob's fortitude deserted him, at the double disappearance of his schoolfellows and his prospective dinner. He took his hands out of his pockets, looked hard at his knuckles, raised them with great deliberation to his eyes, and when they got there, ground them round and round slowly, accompanying the action by short spasms of sniffing, which followed each other at regular intervals, the nasal minute-guns of juvenile distress. "'We came here to ask you a question, Mr. Dempster,' said Miss Halcombe, addressing the schoolmaster, and we little expected to find you occupied in exorcising a ghost. What does it all mean? What has really happened? That wicked boy has been fighting the whole school, Miss Halcombe, by declaring that he saw a ghost yesterday evening, answered the master, and he still persists in his absurd story, in spite of all that I can say to him. Most extraordinary, said Miss Halcombe. I should not have thought it possible that any of the boys had imagination enough to see a ghost. This is a new accession, indeed, to the hard labour of forming the youthful mind at Limeridge, and I heartily wish you well through it, Mr. Dempster. In the meantime, let me explain why you see me here, and what it is I want. She then put the same question to the schoolmaster, which we had asked already of almost every one else in the village. It was met by the same discouraging answer. Mr. Dempster had not set eyes on the stranger of whom we were in search. "'We may as well return to the house, Mr. Hartwright,' said Miss Halcombe. "'The information we want is evidently not to be found.' She had bowed to Mr. Dempster, and was about to leave the schoolroom, when the forlorn position of Jacob Postlethwaite, piteously sniffing on the stool of penitence, attracted her attention as she passed him, and made her stop good-humouredly to speak a word to the little prisoner before she opened the door. "'You foolish boy,' she said, "'why don't you beg Mr. Dempster's pardon, and hold your tongue about the ghost?' "'Eh, but I sought ghost,' persisted Jacob Bustlethwaite, with a stare of terror and a burst of tears. "'Stop and nonsense! You saw nothing of the kind! Ghost, indeed! What ghost?' "'I beg your pardon, Miss Harcombe interposed the schoolmaster a little uneasily, but I think you had better not question the boy. The obstinate folly of his story is beyond all belief, and you might lead him into ignorantly. Ignorantly what? inquired Miss Halcombe sharply. Ignorantly shocking your feelings, said Mr. Dempster, looking very much discomposed. Upon my word, Mr. Dempster, you pay my feelings a great compliment in thinking them weak enough to be shocked by such an urchin as that. She turned with an air of satirical defiance to little Jacob, and began to question him directly. "'Come,' she said, "'I mean to know all about this, you naughty boy. When did you see the ghost?' "'Yesterine, at the gloaming,' replied Jacob. "'Oh, you saw it yesterday evening, in the twilight. And what was it like?' in white, as a ghost should be,' answered the ghost-seer, with a confidence beyond his years. And where was it? Away under, into Kirkyard, where a ghost ought to be. As a ghost should be, 
where a ghost ought to be. Why, you little fool, you talk as if the manners and customs of ghosts had been familiar to you from your infancy. You have got your story at your fingers' ends at any rate. I suppose I shall hear next that you can accurately tell me whose ghost it was. Eh, but I just can, replied Jacob, nodding his head with an air of gloomy triumph. Mr. Dempster had already tried several times to speak while Miss Holcombe was examining his pupil, and he now interposed resolutely enough to make himself heard. "'Excuse me, Miss Holcombe,' he said, "'if I venture to say that you are only encouraging the boy by asking him these questions. I will merely ask one more, Mr. Dempster, and then I shall be quite satisfied. Well,' she continued, turning to the boy, "'and whose ghost was it?' To ghost of Mistress Fairley, answered Jacob in a whisper. The effect which this extraordinary reply produced on Miss Halcombe fully justified the anxiety which the schoolmaster had shown to prevent her from hearing it. Her face crimsoned with indignation. She turned upon little Jacob with an angry suddenness which terrified him into a fresh burst of tears, opened her lips to speak to him then controlled herself, and addressed the master instead of the boy. "'It is useless,' she said, "'to hold such a child as that responsible for what he says. I have little doubt that the idea has been put into his head by others. If there are people in this village, Mr. Dempster, who have forgotten the respect and gratitude due from every soul in it to my mother's memory, I will find them out, and if I have any influence with Mr. Fairley, they shall suffer for it. "'I hope, indeed, I am sure, Miss Holcombe, that you are mistaken,' said the schoolmaster. "'The matter begins and ends with the boy's own perversity and folly. "'He saw, or thought he saw, a woman in white yesterday evening, "'as he was passing the churchyard, and the figure, real or fancied, "'was standing by the marble cross which he and everyone else in Limeridge "'knows to be the monument over Mrs. Fairley's grave.' These two circumstances are surely sufficient to have suggested to the boy himself the answer which has so naturally shocked you. Although Miss Halcombe did not seem to be convinced, she evidently felt that the schoolmaster's statement of the case was too sensible to be openly combated. She merely replied by thanking him for his attention, and by promising to see him again when her doubts were satisfied. This said, she bowed and led the way out of the schoolroom. Throughout the whole of this strange scene, I had stood apart, listening attentively, and drawing my own conclusions. As soon as we were alone again, Miss Halcombe asked me if I had formed any opinion on what I had heard. A very strong opinion, I answered. The boy's story, as I believe, has a foundation in fact. I confess I am anxious to see the monument over Mrs. Fairley's grave and to examine the ground about it. You shall see the grave. She paused after making that reply, and reflected a little as we walked on. What has happened in the schoolroom, she resumed, has so completely distracted my attention from the subject of the letter, that I feel a little bewildered when I try to return to it. And must we give up all idea of making any further inquiries? and wait to place the thing in Mr. Gilmore's hands to-morrow. By no means, Miss Harcombe, what has happened in the schoolroom encourages me to persevere in the investigation. 
Why does it encourage you? Because it strengthens a suspicion I felt when you gave me the letter to read. I suppose you had your reasons, Mr. Hartwright, for concealing that suspicion from me till this moment. I was afraid to encourage it in myself. I thought it was utterly preposterous. I distrusted it as the result of some perversity in my own imagination. But I can do so no longer. Not only the boy's own answers to your questions, but even a chance expression that dropped from the schoolmaster's lips in explaining his story, have forced the idea back into my mind. Events may yet prove that idea to be a delusion, Miss Halcombe, but the belief is strong in me at this moment that the fancied ghost in the churchyard and the writer of the anonymous letter are one and the same person. She stopped, turned pale, and looked me eagerly in the face. What person? The schoolmaster unconsciously told you. When he spoke of the figure that the boy saw in the churchyard, he called it a woman in white. Not Anne Catherick. Yes, Anne Catherick. She put her hand through my arm and leaned on it heavily. I don't know why, she said in low tones, but there is something in this suspicion of yours that seems to startle and unnerve me. I feel... She stopped and tried to laugh it up. Mr. Hartwright, she went on, I will show you the grave and then go back at once to the house. I had better not leave Laura too long alone. I had better go back and sit with her. We were close to the churchyard when she spoke. The church, a dreary building of grey stone, was situated in a little valley so as to be sheltered from the bleak winds blowing over the moorland all round it. The burial ground advanced from the side of the church, a little way up the slope of the hill. It was surrounded by a rough low stone wall, and was bare and open to the sky, except at one extremity, where a brook trickled down the stony hillside, and a clump of dwarf trees threw their narrow shadows over the short meagre grass. Just beyond the brook and the trees, and not far from one of the three stone stiles which afforded entrance at various points to the churchyard, rose the white marble cross that distinguished Mrs. Fairley's grave from the humbler monuments scattered about it. "'I need go no farther with you,' said Miss Halcombe, pointing to the grave. "'You will let me know if you find anything to confirm the idea you have just mentioned to me. Let us meet again at the house.' She left me. I descended at once to the churchyard, and crossed the stile which led directly to Mrs. Fairley's grave. The grass about it was too short, and the ground too hard, to show any marks of footsteps. Disappointed thus far, I next looked attentively at the cross, and at the square block of marble below it, on which the inscription was cut. The natural whiteness of the cross was a little clouded here and there by weather stains, and rather more than one half of the square block beneath it, on the side which bore the inscription, was in the same condition. The other half, however, attracted my attention at once, by its singular freedom from stain or impurity of any kind. I looked closer, and saw that it had been cleaned, recently cleaned, in a downward direction from top to bottom. The boundary line between the part that had been cleaned, 
and the path that had not was traceable wherever the inscription left a blank space of marble sharply traceable as a line that had been produced by artificial means who had begun the cleansing of the marble and who had left it unfinished i looked about me wondering how the question was to be solved no sign of a habitation could be discerned from the point at which i was standing the burial ground was left in the lonely possession of the dead i returned to the church and walked round it till i came to the back of the building then crossed the boundary wall beyond by another of the stone stiles and found myself at the head of a path leading down into a deserted stone quarry against one side of the quarry a little two-room cottage was built and just outside the door an old woman was engaged in washing i walked up to her and entered into conversation about the church and burial ground she was ready enough to talk and almost the first word she said informed me that her husband filled the two offices of clerk and sexton i said a few words next in praise of mrs fairley's monument the old woman shook her head and told me i had not seen it at its best it was her husband's business to look after it but he had been so ailing and weak for months and months past that he had hardly been able to crawl into church on sundays to do his duty and the monument had been neglected in consequence he was getting a little better now and in a week or ten days time he hoped to be strong enough to set to work and clean it this information extracted from a long rambling answer in the broadest cumberland dialect told me all that i most wanted to know i gave the poor woman a trifle and returned at once to limeridge house the partial cleansing of the monument had evidently been accomplished by a strange hand connecting what i had discovered thus far with what i had suspected after hearing the story of the ghost seen at twilight i wanted nothing more to confirm my resolution to watch mrs fairley's grave in secret that evening returning to it at sunset and waiting within sight of it till the night fell the work of cleansing the monument had been left unfinished and the person by whom it had been begun might return to complete it on getting back to the house i informed miss harcombe of what i intended to do she looked surprised and uneasy while i was explaining my purpose but she made no positive objection to the execution of it she only said i hope it may end well just as she was leaving me again i stopped there to inquire as calmly as i could after miss fairley's health she was in better spirits and miss harcombe hoped she might be induced to take a little walking exercise while the afternoon sun lasted i returned to my own room to resume setting the drawings in order it was necessary to do this and doubly necessary to keep my mind employed on anything that would help to distract my attention from myself and from the hopeless future that lay before me from time to time i paused in my work to look out of window and watch the sky as the sun sank nearer and nearer to the horizon on one of those occasions i saw a figure on the broad gravel walk under my window it was miss fairley i had not seen her since the morning and i had hardly spoken to her then 
another day at Limeridge was all that remained to me, and after that day my eyes might never look on her again. This thought was enough to hold me at the window. I had sufficient consideration for her to arrange the blind so that she might not see me if she looked up, but I had no strength to resist the temptation of letting my eyes, at least, follow her as far as they could on her walk. She was dressed in a brown cloak, with a plain black silk gown under it. On her head was the same simple straw hat which she had worn on the morning when we first met. A veil was attached to it now, which hid her face from me. By her side trotted a little Italian greyhound, the pet companion of all her walks, smartly dressed in a scarlet cloth wrapper, to keep the sharp air from his delicate skin. She did not seem to notice the dog. She walked straight forward, with her head drooping a little, and her arms folded in her cloak. The dead leaves, which had whirled in the wind before me, when I had heard of her marriage engagement in the morning, whirled in the wind before her, and rose and fell and scattered themselves at her feet, as she walked on in the pale waning sunlight. The dog shivered and trembled, and pressed against her dress impatiently for notice and encouragement. But she never heeded him. She walked on, farther and farther away from me, with the dead leaves whirling about her on the path, walked on, till my aching eyes could see her no more, and I was left alone again with my own heavy heart. In another hour's time I had done my work, and the sunset was at hand. I got my hat and coat in the hall, and slipped out of the house without meeting anyone. The clouds were wild in the western heaven, and the wind blew chill from the sea. Far as the shore was, the sound of the surf swept over the intervening moorland, and beat drearily in my ears when I entered the churchyard. Not a living creature was in sight. The place looked lonelier than ever as I chose my position, and waited and watched with my eyes on the white cross that rose over Mrs. Fairley's grave. End of chapter 4 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.